Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to Nashville, CA, your double featured double weekly podcast hosted by one guy who lives in Nashville and the other guy, me, Sean, who lives in California. Who's that other guy over there? That's Josh. Hello. Hi, Sean. How are you today? I'm a bit wired, so I have a second <laughs> coffee, but I haven't touched it yet, and I don't think I need to. After that falsetto, do you? No, I've been warming up the voice with a little guitar work this morning because right. I was not happy with my bass level last week's episode. Mm. I had real tin pot voice. You got to get the nice, deep voice. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to be pushing for my stomach and talking like this for mm -hmm. this episode. Mm. That's not unsettling <laughs> at all. <laughs> Ooh, do, doing this voice makes me want to watch Potty Pool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but wait, who's that third voice on the podcast this week? It's our good friend, Russell. How are you today, Russell? I'm doing pretty well. That's great. You, you have a, uh, like, you're winning the fashion wars, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. That is a delightful top you're wearing. Uh, very yeah. bright and full of colors. And I, I'm feeling bad because the majority of my outfits are, like, everything's black. Every <laughs> just black and then dark blue jeans. And that's, I, I wear a bright yellow shoes that or purple shoes. That's like my mm -hmm. uh, concession to, to color. So I'm envious of your ability to pull that off. Well, I mean, that's just your style. It suits you. So mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't think it's a failing in any way. All right. Thank you. I yeah. did do bright, uh, like fairly bright purple nail polish this week. Yeah. They're really pretty. Thank you. This, mm -hmm. this start is straight out of Radio 101. Always start your show with two visual references yes. for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Do some great double takes. Yeah. So we have, a, we have a double Tennessee contingency here on our hands today, don't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you guys going to get hit by the storm, or is it missing you? I don't think so. It's pretty warm here today. It's more to the northeast. Yeah, I think it's going to rain a little, maybe, but we're definitely not getting two feet of snow. Gotcha. So we have already gotten like sn two snows that were, I think, record breakers for the time. Mm -hmm. We almost usually get nothing, but thanks to climate change, later and later in the year, we get big snows for us. <laughs> yeah, there's still. I wish it snowed here just once. Just the or one time? Once a year. It will. I know, I know it's been it's been way colder here than normal. We we have a lot more frosts this year than we normally do. Mm. So it's coming for you. That that's very ominous. Wow. I don't like that at all. <laughs> like the Nazi party coming after the Von Trapp family because Russell, you chose the Sound of Music today from 1965, directed by Robert. How do you say his last name? Wise? Wise. 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 Yeah. He's he, from he, Indiana, so I didn't think it would go with the full German W, but you never know. Yeah. He probably Weiss. wanted to avoid the German W if he was making this movie about Nazis. Probably. He probably <laughs> wanted to go by Wise. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I hear he did ask everyone, uh, where are their papers? <laughs> <laughs> so, Russell, Josh and I have never seen this movie before. It's a classic. Um... Why did you choose it, and what's your background with it? Uh, you know, I can't remember the first time I saw this movie. It's one of those that you see on TV all the time growing up. It's very Christmassy. And you guys approached me 
like what should we listen to earlier than Christmas? But I had like too many ideas going in my head all at once. And I sat down around Christmas and I put this on and I was just struck by it again. Like this was the first Blu-ray I bought when I got a Blu-ray player. And like it is a gorgeous looking movie. It's so colorful, like gauzy. And it was really striking then. I think it struck me again when I sat down and I watched part of it with my niece and she was four and she like was immediately singing Do Re Mi after that scene happened. So I was like, wow, this is impressive that people still enjoy this. Though I don't seem like that melt you guys your heart. Did. Yeah. Did that's sweet, your niece doing that. It was nice, yeah. It's catchy. Well, you said like the colors of this movie are pretty spectacular, especially like the starting shot with the mirror lake. Mm, yeah. And anything shot in the hills, um it it's stunningly beautiful. Yeah, I think that's really what sets it apart from so many musicals of like coming out of the late fifties. Everything was just sort of cheaply shot on these back lots and studio stages. Like the big Oklahoma fields are just on some, you know, back lot with purple gobos shining on the background. And you have this like shot all over Salzburg in these like incredible historical locations. It's really cool. So you talk about a bit of history with musicals. Josh, what's your history with musicals? Because I really don't have any whatsoever. <laughs> and that has cracked me up through our interactions. It's like, uh, I think musicals and westerns and noir, like these things that are fairly big to me are, are just have been non-existent in your Blind life. spots. Yes. No. Um, so I grew up with a lot of like the, I guess the Disney kind of stuff mm. watching. Um, I feel like I watched things around the sound of music um, with your, your Mary Poppinses and your yeah. seven brides for seven brothers kind of hitting on either side, West side story, obviously. Um, and that was just like something I can always remember. They would run it on, I feel like Sunday afternoons on PBS. Cause we only had the four stations. Mm, right. Yeah. Um, and like everything else is, uh, sports or talk shows on Sunday afternoons. And I, I don't give a shit. So I would wind up watching these beautiful technicolor movies. Um, and Russell, you're right. The, the photography in this film is exquisite. I think, and this is my major complaint with the film that they rely on the photography too much. Uh, and with the actual blocking and staging, they don't do as much as Robert Wise did with something like West Side Story. Uh, was it three or four years earlier? Uh, there's a lot more dynamic camera uh, work in that and a lot more dynamic, you know, dancing and staging. This is a lot more proscenium feeling like yeah. you're presented with this kind of tableau, but it makes me want to go on a trip. It makes me want to get a passport and go to Austria and eat some chocolate. And, you know, I don't want to climb a mountain, but I want to climb that mm. mountain yeah. or maybe every mountain. <laughs> they should be playing this on PBS. Cause it's very good companion to Rick Steves, Europe. <laughs> oh my God. I hadn't <laughs> even thought of Rick Steves for years. He's still on. Mm -hmm. My parents had that set of books, just Rick Steves. India, Rick Steves, mm -hmm. Central Europe. Um, so that's the difference, Josh. On Sundays, you were watching musicals, and I was watching football and baseball mm -hmm. and shit. Okay. Yeah. I'm starting to understand you. It's only <laughs> taken almost a year, but I'm starting to get it. You'll crack this nut eventually. 
You like musicals, Sean. One of the first movies you ever showed me was a musical about two Czechoslovakian people falling in love over a piano. Oh, that, that, that's that was Connie's choice, and oh, that was, was uh, and that dude's Irish. But only one check, <laughs> only one check in but that movie. As you pointed, all right. So I do love Once, but that I don't count that as a musical. Yeah, it's not it's, really a musical. It's a movie about music. Yeah, which. Uh, Russell and I are in Sunday morning movie club together, and it was your suggestion to do movies about music that are not musicals for a theme, right? Yeah, I think that was on my list. Um, that was a really fun run that yeah, we it was. did. I'm uh, sad, kind of sad but, I didn't end up picking uh, Waiting for Guffman, since we did uh, also Mighty Wind. They would have gone well together. Ooh, my heart. Mighty Wind was great. Mighty Wind is so good. I think it's the best guest movie. It's the only one that really has like a real deep heart to it, like sincerity with uh, Mickey and you, whatever Captain O'Hara's Kane. Yeah, name is. Yeah, yeah. That um, the the Rose bit in that movie oh, gets yeah. me every time. It is mm-hmm. so sweet, and not that uh, his other movies are necessarily cynical, but that. That avenue right there is very pure, I feel like, and it, mm-hmm. it does. It gets me right in the heart. Although I think Guffman gives me more Billy laughs. So oh, Guffman's hilarious. Yeah. But it's truly more nonsensical. And this, it's, yes. it's sincere in its nonsensicality, but it's not like going for any deep feelings. Yeah. Um, and beyond all of this uh my only other musical experience is repo the genetic opera oh christ (laughs) (laughs) isn't paris hilton and uh yes she was oh my gosh good call good call back (laughs) and uh i've seen uh the producers when i was a teenager live in theater and that's also one of the very few live theater experiences i have in my life i do want to change that but now there's a pandemic and live theater. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening there. Well, Neither we'll does to, anyone else. We'll have to plan a group trip to go up to Stratford together. I've been up there. I know. We, we had a, a conversation. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll get Austin of Knoxville and uh-huh. the whole Tennessee crew together and I'll show up. And I'll go to Canada. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. It's, we, have to, we have to trek up to Canada for it, Sean. Uh, but oh, it, I thought you were just talking about like a theater in northern Tennessee or something. No. When you said we're going to go up there. No, although I did see, uh, I took Elizabeth, um, we went on a little vacation, mini vacation a couple years ago. And um, my surprise for her for the vacation was to take her to the, is it like, not Cookville. It was some out of the way playhouse where they were doing Legally Blonde, the musical. I love that musical. And it was so good. It was like the performers came from Nashville and Atlanta, apparently, mm-hmm. and stayed stay over for the summer. So it's got this like total summer stock feel. Mm-hmm. And so everybody was great performance wise. And uh, even though in the middle of the last act, there was a tornado warning and we all had to go down into the basement. <laughs> I've, I've so, been in a show where that happened. <laughs> we were hanging out with the actors and it's like. Cool, you're ready to get back to it? I just felt yeah. terrible for him. Like, you would not be warmed up after that. That's got to suck for 45 yeah. minutes. But were you worried when the tornado hit that the building would bend and snap? <gasps> <laughs> nice, Sean. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. The guy who wrote that musical also wrote the uh, Bat Boy the musical, which I did in college, which is a mm-hmm. great show. It's really fun. So this movie in particular, I was amazed uh, because, you know, you can't be around like movie stuff and not know of it, at least. You and can't not know of it at all. It has some of the yes. most famous songs ever. I know so many things from this movie. Yeah. Uh, just from being a pop culture sponge with The Simpsons and Larry mm-hmm. David always putting musical stuff in Seinfeld and Curb and everything. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know like many of these songs. So mm-hmm. it was fun in that regard to finally be like, okay, this is where that's from. Yeah. We do that and, a lot in Midnight Musical Club on our Discord too, where we watch old things and people are like, that's where this is from? Like we watched uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, which is the uh, birthplace of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that's not just a song; that's a musical song. It's from that musical from the yeah, I think the '30s with uh, Judy really? Garland. Wow, yeah. Uh, I feel like this one in particular is. I think Harry Connick Jr. has put out like at least half of these songs on his <laughs> albums mm-hmm. uh, in cover versions, which is how I mostly know them. But you can't not know it and you can't not know the iconography of it. There were so many things where it's like the opening shot. I'm like, oh, the iconic shot is the opening shot of yeah. her twirling on a mountaintop. <laughs> like almost everything is taken from that. Uh but it plunges you directly into this setting, like in such a beautiful way that I think that like you were saying, a lot of the, the the set musicals don't have that. Like you don't get these deep vistas. You just get kind mm-hmm. of uh, there's a painting a little ways behind them. And this is like, no, no, this is epic in yeah. scope. I think that's what makes it better than the stage version. Because mm-hmm. the stage, I think, is. I mean, the movie is trite anyway, to some degree, but I think it seems less trite when it's set in giant basilicas and the hills of actual uh, Austria than it Mm -hmm. does like when you're on stage when there's a big wedding and just there's a bunch of nuns sort of standing under fake arches. (laughs) Some of the backgrounds are incredible Mm. uh, because they're hanging out in short sleeves and behind them is a mountaintop 15,000 feet (laughs) above them that's covered in snow. Uh, just the juxtaposition of uh, nature it's it's really stunning and this was shot in 64 i believe mm-hmm. um helicopters were still like pretty new in yeah. 64 so the yeah. fact that they had one up there with a camera rig somehow attached to it flying around judy garland as she's twirling sorry, around who? in a big dress <laughs> Oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews. Yeah. You said Judy Garland earlier. and that, That's it, fair. My brain can't keep that many musical things in it. So, From her commentary, it seemed like there's just someone hanging out of the side of the helicopter with a camera of some kind, like rigged set up. I don't know if that Good was Lord. just her way of putting it. But she also talked about every time they had to reset for the shot, the helicopter would not fly up high enough. So it just knocked her totally to the ground every time it passed over to turn around. To go back for the next shot. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I mean, the fact that it was shot in the 60s means there probably was just a cameraman hanging out of the, with like attached to a rope. Yeah. So uh, we talked about Robert Wise a little bit, Um, you know, go Hoosiers. Uh, And I did not realize how many of his movies 
are classics. Like it's between this and West Side Story, um, the uh, the Sand Pebbles Andromeda Strain. Audrey Rose is a great like gothic feeling horror movie. Star Trek the Motion Picture. Like this guy worked from the 30s up until the late 90s or early 2000s. Like he had a huge run, and he was, uh, I believe, president of the um, academy for a while as well. Yeah, I read that too. I think it's ju- it's I... just fascinating to you know, like the same guy that made the Devil Devil and Daniel Webster made this. Which, if you haven't seen that, it's a great. It's on Criterion. Um, mm. It's like, to my mind, probably the earliest great like courtroom drama. Uh, but also involves the devil and <laughs> some great performances. So it's, there's something about like that kind of um, he's not an auteur, right? He's a, a workman for hire basically yeah. type guy who just happened to do great things over and over again. And I think that's really, it's fascinating. And I, I think underexplored with everyone kind of being obsessed with auteurs, these yeah. kinds of guys don't get their deal. I mean, he was certainly. I've never skilled. seen one of his movies. Yes, you have. Well, I've seen one now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I've seen West Side Story. I don't know that I've seen any of his others. I, I, the original uh, Cat People. I know Curse of, that, but I haven't seen it. Curse of the Cat People, is, or I think the original was Jack Turner. Is there a new Cat People? Yes, there is. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's the Paul Schrader one from the eighties. Yeah, uh, that's Nashasha Kinski. Incest in it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. um but there's you can tell there is something so mature and settled about the the filming and the staging of this that i really did appreciate yeah i think it's an inherently much less a kinetic movie than west side Mm -hmm. story so that's why it looks so much flatter and i just feel like they were going for like there's almost every like some of the scenes just look like paintings. And I think that's what, oh, yeah. what they're going for with this European fairy tale feel of the story. So what do you guys feel in general about this type of music? Because this is a very specific type of musical that trades in these lush, romantic uh, string oriented uh, kind of big numbers. Um this is something that like I grew up with through my grandparents listening to old radio stuff and having like old uh, records lying around that they would listen to very much uh, like it's like the good version of Lawrence Welk kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I have an appreciation for it and it takes me back to childhood, even though I don't have this specific movie in my memory from then. What do, what do you guys feel about the the arrangements and everything? I think I would maybe do better with something that's more Phantom of the Opera ish, mm-hmm. which is let this is um disco more. This more this is like more vaudeville. Would that be an appropriate? No, it would not. No, be. it's more like operetta. <laughs> yes, I don't. This is more. I don't know. I don't have the vocabulary to describe any of my thoughts about <laughs> any of this. It's like but... capital R romantic. Yeah, I'll tell you how I feel. This is this is like stuff that my grandma would I feel like have been into, mm-hmm. especially how these children behave. And so I think for me, I have a rebellious bone in my body still that's like 
a very <laughs> immature teenager thing to rebel against things that your family is into. <laughs> but I think because of that, I rebel against this kind of music. And it's just, it's a little too saccharine and Disney and and it, it, that's what it is, but it doesn't connect with me. I mean, that's, that's a fair assessment. That is, uh, I found it to be, it took me a second, but it was very winning overall for me. And like I said, you know, I listened to a lot of Harry Connick Jr. I, <laughs> my, uh, the running joke is that the most uttered command to my, uh, Amazon robot lady was play jazz when I lived by myself <laughs> because I would walk in and I would listen to, to like Django Reinhardt for hours, just like as my background music as I'm in my house. And, uh, so, you know, this was very much not up my, you know, my punk sad boys with guitars alley, but <laughs> a much deeper trough in my brain. I feel like, what about you, Russell? Oh, I love the music in this. I love boring music. I like old music. <laughs> like, so this is right up my alley. I mean, I love I love the opening song and it goes straight into like the non chorale arrangements. Like I love that. It's so gorgeous. Like the Alleluia's mm -hmm. in the old church. I love that. And and then you go to I Have Confidence, which is written for the movie. And I feel like it's a totally another different it's not a completely different style, but it has a different feel. Mm -hmm. You're going through these different feeling movies. I I just like this stuff. I did like that song. So I like sound or um the hills are alive with the sound of music. Mm -hmm. And I I was quite surprised, like, oh, this thing is the most famous thing from this movie is the start of this movie. Right. And I was wondering how often that happens. Um, Basically the whole first like, hour. Her, <laughs> yeah. Her song about self-doubt and fear of going into something new, even though she desires adventure. I did dig that song. But then you get to a more of a big chorus piece, like how do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> and then I, I it, it, so I was kind of teeter tottering back and mm -hmm. forth, like some songs I was kind of into, and then I think it, the the stuff with the kids especially loses me um, as we get further on. Um, but so I was back and forth on some of the songs overall. I I love how do you solve a problem like Maria. Me the too. the bouncing between the different voices. It's one of those things like um, Steven Soderbergh talked about Mad Max Fury Road, that he does not know how they put that together. Like it is beyond his comprehension as a filmmaker to understand the mechanics of how that movie works. And that's what I feel like with the music in this. I'm like, it is so intricately played and the mm. themes go throughout it like you, in the background the themes are playing constantly underneath oh, yeah. other scenes and it's just woven so tightly and there's such a precision to it that i like the craftsman in me really appreciates that yeah. aspect of it they keep teasing something good the whole movie and i couldn't remember if it was in it because i love that song mm -hmm. <laughs> and so i'm like are they just gonna tease me the whole time <laughs> i did notice um there's a line in the office where they're at a musical and the guy says quiet i have to hear the overture so that way i can identify the musical themes that demonstrate later or something like that <laughs> I and love so that for line. me that was exactly how i was like oh now that i know that i was paying attention to the intro and then yeah i did like um 
weaving in and out. Some songs I felt like maybe had one run too many. I think <laughs> yeah. the runtime for this movie being two hours fifty seven is um what really hurt this one for me. I think if you lop an hour off of it, I'd probably be a much more excited person about watching it. But then it wouldn't be worth um, your ticket to go out to the theater all night. I know. And you know what? I did not fast forward one second through that intermission. I sat there and I did this movie in one sitting and I just let it play. Mm -hmm. um, you listened to the on track. Yeah. So, um, but I, especially at the very end of this movie where you get a more dramatized orchestral theme of these songs but now it's darker it's like mm -hmm. they switched some of the keys to a mm -hmm. minor key as the pursuit is happening and that was a really cool touch of craft i really like uh, the way they do that arrangement when the kids are sad and they're singing uh, after maria's left and they do that really yes. sort of minory version of sound of music um what do you think of julie andrews i mean this is i don't have a whole lot of experience with her, I mean, Mary Poppins, she, she is Mary Poppins in my head, or Mary Poppins is Julie Andrews, kind of how it works. And she um, filmed this before Mary Poppins had come out. She had not had a movie come out while she was filming this. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. She had filmed two movies, but neither of them came out. And okay. uh, I think she went to the Sound of Music premiere, and then two days later won Best Actress for Mary Poppins. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So Which I still don't understand, but Mary <laughs> Poppins of all her roles, she's going to win Best Actress. Um, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, uh, sitting down to watch for me, it was like The Godfather Two. I had never seen it until I was in my twenties, and I knew mm -hmm. as a film guy, like, it's one of those movies you're supposed to watch and love. And I, I'm. Just like now, like I'm checking movies off the, off the list all the time. Mm. And I got to Godfather 2 and I'm like, all right, I'll sit down and watch this, whatever. And like, I'm fucking engrossed. Like I am, I'm, I am there the whole time. That's Julie Andrews seeing her this young doing this kind of role. Like not like Princess Diaries where she's kind of playing, <laughs> she's playing a version of herself like yeah. Winky. And this is, she's so charming. Like, I just don't, there's no other word for it. Whatever it is that old Hollywood stars had, like, you, I know why she is a star now, because, because of these roles. But I don't even think she has that. She's so, feels so down to earth. Maybe it's the tomboy short haircut. Mm -hmm. But like, she's just so, not, I mean, it's not naturalistic. Like, this isn't French New Wave. But she feels right. so earnest and like, I don't know. I think she works so well in this. Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, it really benefits to play off uh, Christopher Plummer, who mm. I did not recognize until I pulled up notes for this movie. Oh yeah! After I watched it, I was like, "Holy shit! That that that's that guy from yeah. Knives Out." Yes, um, he used to be hot as a young man too. But he was a real dick in this movie. Oh and so my I god! Think that made her <laughs> seem so much cooler. Absolutely. Yeah, she seems like the nun next door. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, so Maria is a, is a problem to be solved and she is not an asset to the Abbey. We learn, yeah. um, she's going to be sent to be a governess to seven motherless children, seven and children, <laughs> the, once she gets there, um, the line, 
hello, I'm the new governess. I'm the old butler. That made me giggle. Uh, I I thought that was a great little, uh, speaking of vaudeville, vaudeville type type joke. Shows you right away that that guy's a Nazi and he's awful. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And also, when she's being questioned about um, her clothes, like she's told to to put on the nicer clothes, (laughs) and that she donated them all to the poor when she went into the Abbey to begin with. And they said, well, what about that dress you're wearing? She says, the poor didn't want this one. (laughs) She's she's so earnest in those jokes, too. And it works like on this totally different level, it feels like. Like when he's like, were you this much trouble at the Abbey? She's like, oh, it was much worse. She's just so honest about it. (laughs) Yeah, It really works. Like it's such a strange way to sell a joke, but she does it. And, And I mean, there's a lot in this movie, kind of the undercurrents of faith and questioning uh, duty, I think, mm-hmm. to to yourself, to God, and to your country, um, yeah. or to How your much government. Sacrifice is worth it. Yes, and you know, um, she very much her her character arc is to learn to take the middle path. Right, like mm-hmm. she starts off in the nunnery. She goes totally uh, nature feral <laughs> with the children, climbing them up trees, and learns to come together with the captain, uh, kind of in the middle path. And I think that that is through her um, her outfits and mm-hmm. her her manner of, of carriage through the whole movie. Later on, um, when she gets to like appreciate the children, they appreciate her she is so motherly and doting just in her actions, which feels almost revolutionary and something from this time where we are used to a more, you know, Christopher Plummer type, or we're standing here mm-hmm. and uh, hall of presidents style. And <laughs> yeah. she does feel a lot more natural uh, with those interactions. And I think that stuff really plays well. Yeah. How she still sort of remains friend ish with Liesl towards the end. Like, Mm-hmm. She's motherly, not in a go to bed, do your chores way, but in a let's talk about men and growing and how someday this won't seem exactly the same because you'll be mature and you won't need to date a Nazi boy. <laughs> yeah, that song about her being on the verge of womanhood <laughs> and now men are going to come out and they're out to get you now. Yeah, mm-hmm. creepy. That was very real. Like, Oh yeah, um, that scene where the the one daughter is dancing with that eighteen year old guy in the mm-hmm. gazebo, I was a, a little concerned about that whole that whole deal. <laughs> the uh, uh, when oh go ahead. I was gonna say that gazebo is the love shack on on the property there. That's where everybody <laughs> goes to to confess their loves. That's the blue light district. I wasn't sure if their dance was a metaphorical sex dance. It was not. But as they were doing it, I was like, oh, is this the movie telling us that they're fucking right now? No. <laughs> it's a metaphorical kiss dance. Yes. <laughs> the uh, At the end of that number, when she says, wee! At <laughs> that moment, it's so yes. stupid. <laughs> it's horrible. But I've always known the melody. You are 16, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. going on 17. But yep. now I know, like, the dark 
theme that that song is actually kind of presenting and it completely changes what I thought was just like a delightful little tune for me. It sort of wants to be at the time still. Like they did a version of this on Saturday Night Live when John Mulaney hosted a year or two ago. Um, I mean, it had to be like two years ago because it was pre his his problems. <laughs> but uh, that really plays up that angle of it, Sean. Uh, it's it's yeah. a great number. And the staging of it in SNL is pretty damn good. Especially considering like what they're going from, and they only have this tiny little stage to work with. Yeah. It's pretty. It's fun. I love the staging of it in the movie. Yeah, like just the choice to have it raining on those windows is so cool. The that was a note that I made in both of the gazebo scenes is the the cinematography in mm-hmm. those. It's not traditional, like glowing on the actors. They're in and out of shadows a lot of time. It's more, it's a lot darker, but the blue glow that kind of surrounds it, Mm -hmm. it does feel like, um, I don't mean this as a pejorative, but it it feels like a Thomas Kincaid painting, (laughs) like in a good way, like just this glowing, beautiful light and this kind of, this little safe space that they've made. And it is, it taps into those kinds of feelings of like being a teenager and like holding hands kind of stuff. I think it's really sweet. I think the lighting is the number one aspect of this movie. It's incredible mm-hmm. throughout. The, uh, oh, so Liesel and Rolf have their, their dance in the gazebo and Liesel sneaks back in through the window uh, in the governess's room. And we find out that, the children have been sneaking into this window to play tricks on the previous governesses, which is why they don't have any. Mm -hmm. Uh, But first of all, the, that interaction when um, Maria is praying and then, and then prays for Liesel as she's Mm -hmm. standing there, I think is, that's really cool. And it goes directly into all the children running into the room and into my favorite things. Which your other, like probably even bigger number from mm-hmm. this from this musical is my favorite things. How did that become a Christmas song? It just sounds wintry. Okay. <laughs> I was like the whole time, I'm like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna open this up this time. I'm gonna figure this out. Maybe there's something in the staging that you know says Christmas. But no, she just mentions wintery stuff a couple times. Yeah. But it's well, just in the a, stage musical, that takes place at the Abbey, and she sings it with the Mother Abbess. Wait, what? Yeah, in the stage musical, they sing Lonely Goatherd during the thunderstorm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's such a huge improvement in the movie. Yeah, I definitely it's so do. so nice, yeah. I think it's it just because it makes like, sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it mentions a bee stinging, but unless you're in Australia... A bee is not going to sting you at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> what about dogs biting? Are they dingoes? Dogs will bite you any time of year. <laughs> you can get a dog bite don't, anytime. Don't fuck with dogs. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just because it lists lots of things that seem presently mm-hmm. things you really want to get. Schnitzel with noodles. That was a line that once that caught in my brain, I couldn't stop thinking about that just seems odd to me. Schnitzel is a flat pounded meat, right? Yeah, yes. it's pork. That sounds good to me. But it's like mm-hmm. spaghetti and flat no. pork seems weird. No, no, not a spaghetti, first of all. Noodles, you're, like egg noodles. Yes, egg noodles. You're, you're further up in, in Europe. 
and so you're thinking of like a wide, flat egg noodle. Yeah. Uh, and, and and probably like a white Bernays cream sauce. Yes. It probably yes. doesn't have any seasoning. Sounds sounds better than I was picturing just like plain spaghetti noodles <laughs> with with no butter chunk of flat meat. Yeah. <laughs> well, so this this sounds better. I was going to ask if either one of you guys have gone to a like a German uh, or Bavarian beer house type place and eaten before. I've only been to the pharmacy, which is only vaguely close in Nashville. Okay, yeah. They have a worst. They have really good worst, but they, that's they about all they have. Worst. With good mustard. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like their mustard. Um, at uh, Opry Mills, there's the, I don't remember if it's called a Bavarian beer house or whatever. Oh, um, yeah. That they opened up, you know, I say recently because, you know, I'm old. And so yeah. <laughs> anything in the last 15 years is recent to me. Um, yeah. And 2015 but, doesn't feel like it was, you know, seven years ago. That just happened. Literally, mm-hmm. writing my notes for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, I was like, <laughs> yep. oh, this is one of the best movies of the last 10 years. Shit. 15. Shit. 21? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 22? I couldn't believe I couldn't believe this was pre 9-11. I would have put this movie like 2007, 2006. I mean, I can't after watching it. <laughs> yeah, true. Everyone coming into her bedroom is the beginning of the children beginning to thaw towards her. And she's been open towards them the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Do-Re-Mi number, I've seen that uh, excised in probably in like a... Um, uh, AMC clip package, yeah. uh, best musical numbers, that type of thing. Uh, the thing that I did not remember was the bike choreography when yes. they get further into the song. <laughs> I'm like, how do you get eight people on bikes to weave in and out from each other, and half of whom are like under the age of nine, mm-hmm. and, and they're not killing each other, and they're at least pantomiming singing while tra- it's insane. It's a, so I think it that's probably the best stage musical number in any movie musical. Mm-hmm. I counted. There are 10 scene changes. Yeah, jump cuts all around, and I like to picture them carrying the note in between traveling <laughs> from scene to scene. So as they're going from indoor to the bikes, they're just <laughs> running down to the town again on the bike. Remy Sofata Lotto. They're all dressed in clothes made out of curtains that she... Right, she yeah. made curtain. Mm-hmm. She totally Scarlett O'Hara is it? Yep. Uh, she finds out that the kids put glue on the old Fraulein's toothbrush. These kids <laughs> yeah. are menaces. Mm-hmm. Yes. Kid, hey, at uh, least she made them cry. I gotta get one Pilkington in refer- reference in each episode. We went and booked a table for Sunday dinner. I had beef. It was nice enough, but there was a family of thirteen behind us. I don't see the point in going out in large numbers. They annoyed me. One of the family asked for sorbet before his next course. He was only about 11. He thought he was it. And that's what I think about these kids. These kids think they are it. These kids are so high on their own shit that they they drive me crazy. They are. They Those costumes are the fucking coolest. <laughs> They're so gay. I wish I had. I was Friedrich. I was a young, high cheekbone blonde boy in that awesome outfit, roaming I, Vienna. I want to see both of you in Lederhosen. Frankly, that's I. I would wear the matching, the white shirt and shorts with the green leaves all over mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I all right. When we go to Canada on this magical <laughs> trip, let's promise we'll all get matching clothes. Oh, okay. I love it. I think you could pull it off. 
I would do it in a heartbeat. I don't. I don't. I have no. I think no look really good. Dignity right now, left. <laughs> the but Russell, you're right. The staging of that number, like I don't know any of these sites by name that, that mm-hmm. they're visiting, but through the um, I assume like historic museum and through the with the fountain and over the top of the town when that number first mm-hmm. starts and you can see the whole town like spilling out down the hillside below them mm-hmm. and they're talking it's just so cool and uh, i really there were several moments in this that just struck me as like this I know the, every frame of painting, but this still frame, like somebody could paint it and you'd, you'd hang it up uh, yeah. or my grandmother would have hung it up at least. Uh, <laughs> doesn't fit in with my style, but you know, I still do. I still do love and appreciate a lot of it. I think it's such a that cool last... change because it's got to be so it's very static on stage, you know, like it's all mm-hmm. one scene. She's just teaching the sing, And I guess the appeal on stage is you're just seeing like this developing song, people actually singing in front of you. But I think it's just such a good adaptation to put it all over the city. These kids are opening up and exploring Mm -hmm. the town that their dad never lets them see anything. And she's like introducing them to all the sites and music. I I definitely appreciated and preferred these out on location stuff versus um, the clearly soundstage locations that we seem to get to more later in the movie with the graveyard and stuff. Yeah. And... Um, but we are also getting to one of my favorite locations, which is the double staircase that leads down into one staircase. That's cool as shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Those the end of, of Do Re Mi song, she hit a note that made me laugh out loud. There's hey. one final note at the very end, uh-huh. and I didn't expect her to skyrocket, and she skyrocketed it, and it took me off guard. It's like a jump scare. And she has to put her hand on her head yep. and point up. I like. That is so odd. I love that because when you're hitting those notes, it feels like your head could explode if you're really going up there. Uh, I, I love that moment. It's really funny. That little that little physical action, I'm fascinated by those little like ticks and things that people will, will do. That that split second makes me feel like it's in the 60s immediately. Like it just feels very recognizable from having watched. Um, oh God, especially um, it's Turkey Lurkey time. Russell, are you oh, yeah. familiar with? <laughs> uh-huh. That's the, the only cor- song I know from that musical. Okay, it's true of most people. But that the the choreography for that, if nobody, if you haven't seen it, first of all, it's Turkey Lurkey time is a delightful, goofy number. It's really um, fun, and there's a great like play by play that Seth Ruditsky does. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. <laughs> where he talks about all the choreography and the chiropractic bills that had to go into <laughs> staging this number. <laughs> that choreography is awesome. Yeah. Have you seen the Glee version where they mash it up with let's have a kiki? Yes. Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> yep. hilarious. Uh, uh, I yeah, did that f- moment where she does that feels so, it, that just feels like Julie Andrews does that when she yeah. sings. Yeah. I, I was listening to the commentary and I love her physicality throughout this, especially in a, uh, 
I have confidence earlier where she's swinging the bags around and tripping and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she said she really did that because she, she this was like the only song she had trouble remembering the lyrics. So she's just like, I'm going to get really into my body and not worry about the lyrics and just let them become mechanical. So that's why she does all those swinging her bags around and she's tripping and jumping and kicking. That's and she is the one tasked most times in this with doing any physical stuff while she's singing and performing. I yeah. mean, the the kids stand in a line mm-hmm. uh, more or less, or like run to a place and yeah. then deliver something. Hers is, and she is so good with her, um, just her general physicality. Like you said, mm-hmm. uh, the feeling gawky and awkward, yeah. like you have this, empirically beautiful woman who looks very regal and put together. Mm. And the fact that she's got like this tomboyish gait and like big floppy arms, like a, uh, a blow up guy outside of a car dealership. <laughs> it's, she I really just, made me think of Dick Van Dyke. Yes. Um, I also, I just watched the, um, Lucy and Desi, um, uh, Amy Poehler documentary. Uh, mm. and, they were talking about Lucille Ball as somebody who would just, you know, sacrifice her body basically for for the joke for the bit, yeah. and that's what a lot of this felt like to me. I'm like, these are performers who are on that level of just like, no, I'm putting everything I have into this, and mm-hmm. I do appreciate because I I feel like we see a lot of that in Oh Brother as well, which we get to talk about in a minute. So yeah, when when you're doing musicals, or how it when you're rehearsing and stuff, or when they're shooting these, are people singing, but they're just kind of singing at like two thirds gusto because you couldn't sing over and over and over again, just on the production side? I think it varies. I noticed that uh, when they do climb every mountain, you can see that the actress must have been actually singing something because it doesn't look fake. You can see her lip like vibrating with the vibrato, which I feel like you almost never see because I feel like a lot of people just lip sync probably. Because mm-hmm. they record everything on the soundstage with the orchestra earlier, and they're replaying it, like, blaring out of speakers. So it's probably easier just to lip sync, uh, though. That's something else we can talk about in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou later. Okay. <laughs> uh, that those, is... Those voices were... <laughs> those voices started coming out of those mouths. It, yep. was a, it was a little bit shocking. I did not remember that. Yeah, and Clooney is just uh, going for something. Yep. <laughs> We're about an hour into this, and this is when I texted Sean, and I was like, oh, the plot showed up. Because <laughs> uh, Georg drives back into the movie that he's been out of for a minute, the captain. with He's carrying the plot with him. You've got yeah. Uncle Max. Who, the plot shows up, and her name is the Baroness. Yes, and the Baroness, who uh, has, a, has a marriage plot that she wants to ensnare the captain in. She really has less of a marriage plot in the movie than she does in the stage show. Oh, really? I was surprised, like, how not an evil woman she is. Because this feels like the er example of, like, the interloper stepmother lady and mm-hmm. her sort of queer-coded sidekick that want to steal the money. But she's yes. already rich. Yeah. And uh, Max, I, I do, I love Max, especially early on. This mm-hmm. performance, he's so over the top. He is so, um, he reminds me of Philip Seymour Hoffman in talented Mr. Ripley or vice versa, I guess, where he's like, he reminds you of the talented Mr. Ripley and Philip Seymour Hoffman. There we go. <laughs> he, 
because he uh, he's this hanger on a fully admitted hanger on character who's just uh, he's a degenerate. Like, that's what he says. Like, I'm here to drink your booze and eat your fancy food and I'm going to flit around with you. And yeah. it's just like he's this playboy kind of who lives by his wits all the time. And he's just so uh, he's got he says something, uh, the captain says something about, um, be charming to him. And I'm like, this dude's charming all the time. He's always yeah. using his way into something. So you do wonder why the captain puts up with him. Cause he doesn't seem that amused. Oh yeah. I mean, I guess he must be on some level. And whose uncle is he? He's their uncle, but he's a fake uncle. Okay. He's, a know, he's like, Oh, uncle Joe, my friend, my dad's work buddy. Like my uncle Rick. Sure. Okay. Good. Yeah. That makes sense. As you were talking there, Josh, you kind of sparked my brain into thinking of who does Christopher Plummer in this remind me of? And I think closest I could do is Ben Stiller in, um, oh, fuck, the Wes Anderson movie, uh, Royal Tenenbaums. Oh, because he's so stoic. Where he has the kids drilling around, they're in uniform, and I don't know if it's out of fear or control. I mean, in Tenenbaums, it's out of fear. Mm -hmm. But... Just that clinging to control to almost a military aspect. Uh, you do kind of have to supply your own uh, motivation with the Christopher Plummer character, I feel like, because... Yeah. Uh, well, no, you don't. It's fridged wife. Okay. <laughs> Dead woman. That's Dead all woman. the motivation a man needs. Uh, and then his turn happens so quickly. Um, and this was my note. Uh, first, Georg is horny for a wife. Yeah. Second, he's unhappy with the state of the world, with the imminent Nazis and whatnot. Yeah. Why is he such a dick to his kids? We saw him... Because <laughs> they remind him of her. We saw him soften up with the Baroness, and then in the next scene, he's like, just rude to his children. Uh, and then he just needed to hear them singing. Like, you get his whole arc kind of in this little in uh, macrocosm, microcosm, in this moment. Uh, in this little sequence, I think. Well, it was a true story, and that's how it really happened. So. <laughs> I was, first of all, amazed to learn that it was uh, taken from Maria's books. I knew it was based mm -hmm. on a true story. I didn't know she was the one who wrote it. Well, it was uh, essentially based off a West German movie, almost scene by scene, I think, that okay. they made in the like 50s about the Von Trapp family. Uh, and yeah, because the parts that are changed are like the most notable parts. Like yeah. the parts that were invented were the most notable parts. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. That's, you know, maybe Hollywood is better than real life. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so this, have we uh, gotten to the puppet scene yet? Well, no. First, we have our first uh, Heil Hitler. Yes. Did you guys know oh, Nazis yeah. were in this? They're, they're creeping up. Yeah. Slowly but surely, they make their way into this. Did you know that about this while. before you watched it? I did. I did know that it was the Von Trapps fleeing uh, mm. Nazi Germany or Nazis in Austria, but I thought I thought it was going to be like at the intermission point or something. <laughs> yeah. They really squeak it in there in the last 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I do wish it was more pointed on that. I also wish that with Max. I wish you were a little more something. Yeah. Like he is this apolitical jerk, but then he's... <laughs> It's a 60s movie, so they still want you to sort of like him. 
Yeah, he kind of becomes less over the course of the movie rather than more. Yeah, he sort of does, which is interesting. I feel like he's so big and such a presence when he comes in. And then his final little moment there at the microphone where he just kind of gives a little look. And you're like, yeah. And how he doesn't want to hire Hitler. He has to wipe his mustache. after. He yeah. Does it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, the, oh, the children sing to the Baroness because they want to impress her. And Maria has, it's, Kind of weird because Maria also drills the children. <laughs> it's just yeah. in a nicer, softer way. Uh, and she reduces them to tears it, uh, <laughs> yeah. through her absence and through her her tongue lashing of them earlier. Uh, her, like, very passive aggressive. <laughs> yeah. I wish that was a little harder, too. It's sort of hard to buy that these children are crying after that. Uh, yes. I like it as a moment, but I wish you were, like, a little meaner to them. And they certainly deserve it. And I think yeah. that they, they like have learned this from their father kind of, you know, the, well, they're just trying the to speak one. out in any way and get negative attention. If any, that's the only type of attention he gives them. Now, f- up until now, everything was playing very surfacey to me. I was mm-hmm. enjoying it, but it, it was very surfacey. The moment after he first hear, hears his children sing, um, and he apologizes to Maria and he says, you're right. I don't know my children. That fucked me up a little bit. Like, well, we also skipped the big fight moment, which I think yes. sort of delves a little deeper. Cause I, it goes such a strange way to me. Cause you feel like she's going to say, you should like your children. And he says, no, I know what I know. And then she'll say, okay. And then she'll work some more to open up. But instead she like fights back with him. She's like, you need to hear this. So shut the fuck up. And I'm yeah. going to tell you about your kids. <laughs> and I think that's such an interesting choice for like a movie at this time period to make. And I really like the way she plays it there. Yeah. I think, um, just the, I do wish it was stretched out longer to give it more yeah. like, uh, emotional logic. You want this I guess. to be longer? <laughs> just the sequence. I can sure you can shorten other things. <laughs> Um, we don't have enough time for songs if we have actually dramatic scenes. Come on. That's a good point. <laughs> um, so Max is in the background this whole time. Um, like almost his first line is something about wanting to get a musical act together for the Salzburg folk festival. Yeah. Uh, and then he hears these children singing and he's just standing in the back of the room and it never cuts to him, but he's standing there taking it all in. And then he kind of sidles up from the side to the captain and like starts whispering in his ear, basically like these children would be great for our show. Uh, And the captain forbids his children from singing in public, which seems like a weird line to draw. I don't understand why. Hey, he's a Vaughn. He used to be aristocracy. You can't have aristocracy singing in public. That's for poors. Okay. That does kind of make sense. Yeah. They are. I buy it. Uh, the the Baron should be entertained, not the one doing the entertaining. Exactly. Uh, but almost immediately, they have a big... Uh, I don't know if this is a big gala or just a regular gala at the house. Yeah, probably <laughs> regular. Everyone is dressed real fancy. Uh, and Maria is like, children, do your number. And so the kids are singing in public. This is the... <laughs> They're in their own home. <laughs> All right, that this movie kind of went on a dark run for me for a f- ten minutes here with uh-huh. 
the puppet, the puppet scene, yodely, 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 hee hoo. Yeah, I wrote That's my so notes. This, this is losing me. The dad picking up the guitar and singing Adelweiss mm. really, really lost Edelweiss me. Adelweiss is fucking beautiful. I liked Adelweiss. I, I it's, it's not my cup of tea. Man, those and, puppets uh, are so cool too. But man, I was cringing. I we <laughs> had close family friends that my parents went to college with, and we went out to dinner once. We were on vacation. We went to this restaurant, nice restaurant, quiet, maybe 20 other people in there eating, you know, four or five tables, just real quiet. And the daughter, who's about 14 or 15, as a gift to my parents for their anniversary, got up and sang in the arms of angels to them <laughs> in the dining room. Now, were your parents dying dogs? I know. <laughs> It's the only song she could sing well, oh, and God. I just remember I like could not sink further, and I wanted to become one with my chair and just like meld into the fabric and not exist anymore. That is a nightmare story. That's it. Um, both your story and the movie reminded me of um, in Twin Peaks when Alicia Witt's character. Uh, in her ballerina outfit, plays music for the adults. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like when they're trying to pretend that everything is okay and everything is going to come out all right. Uh, and because over this whole party is the threat of Nazis. They're coming. The Nazis are going to show up at any moment and like ruin all your shit. It's going to go, it's going to go very badly for you guys. I don't know if you know this yet, but well, they're just, rich and white. Well, and, and there is. There is a a line about um uh main about maintaining your wealth and just going along with whoever's in power to maintain yeah. your <laughs> the status quo. There's uh, a song about it in the musical that they cut that Max and the Baroness sing. Ooh, yeah, it's <laughs> I can see it coming from them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll get to the breakup later, but the Baroness in the stage musical basically breaks up with him because he won't give up his ethics and just go with the Nazis coming over. Oh, I like that though. Yeah, it makes it a lot better. Yeah, she should be more of a Nazi. She's she looks kind of like a Nazi. Yeah, she looks evil. She needs yes. to be more evil. Um. So yeah, they talk about oh, they're gonna bury their heads in the sands like ostriches mm -hmm. or what? And basically, on this Nazi note, we get an intermission. What do you guys do during intermission? Have you ever experienced an intermission? You're just gonna and skip the so, Lindler. What's the Lindler? The really beautiful dance they do in the courtyard together, and they fall in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, <laughs> I didn't take any notes on that. I just think it's really gorgeous choreography, and it has another one of those static shots where they sort of dance across the frame. Mm -hmm. I really like it. And it's a waltz set to the same music as The Lonely Girl Heard, which I like. Rodgers and Hammerstein are really good at that kind of weaving stuff in and out. They also waltz in this part of the movie to uh, How Can Love Survive, which is another countess and max song that got cut out of the show for the movie oh see i feel like that would have given max more more depth to have some of these numbers i can yeah, definitely sort of. understand that it uh, does have the great line where the baroness it's basically about rich people can't afford to have big love stories they have to do things for expedience and it mm -hmm. has the nice line of trapped by our capital gains are we <laughs> so at the party um <laughs> Georg doesn't like the fact that uh, some of his 
some of his party guests are make Germany great again, folks. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they're like, no, come on over and, um, you know, let's, let's reunite Prussia basically. And, mm-hmm. and we're, we're going to be fine. Uh, and the only person sneakier than the Nazis is the Baroness because oh yeah, she gets to Maria. The only who, person more passive aggressive than Maria at dinner is the Baroness. Is, yes. And it doesn't entirely make sense that she's like, uh, you know, who really likes you, <laughs> the captain, don't yeah. you like him? And then Maria's like, but my fealty to the Lord, I, I must run back to the nunnery. See, they don't talk about it, but I really feel like that's Maria being like, oh, fuck, I'm interfering with this marriage because her whole thing the whole time is she's like really earnestly happy that these children are going to have a new mother figure in their life. Mm hmm. And I think she really flees to be like, well, I can't interfere with this. My duty is to help these people not interfere with this marriage and make it so that they don't end up getting married. And then these children don't have a mother and it's my fault. Yeah. I, that... And it's sort of her, like she's making herself a martyr again. She's like, I must give up my own love and go to the Lord. Well, and Maria doesn't know, um, any any middle road i mean like that's what mm-hmm. i said earlier that's what her, she discovers it but it is either okay i'm here and i'm like partying with these children or i'm going to go away and shut myself in solitude mm-hmm. in the abbey yeah it's like her only two modes she's uh she's an extremist she might be a little bit bipolar it's fine <laughs> she's a liberty gem and a will of the wisp a child <laughs> uh so I think that's the important note that we we get to is that the family is split up. This is our traditional like kind of yeah. third act, everyone or beginning of third act where everyone is mad at each other mm-hmm. moment and everyone's split up and it feels like we're hopeless. Kind Did of you moment. feel anything at this moment, Sean, or were you totally checked out? Because I feel like this is a very anxious ending because it shows the big house and she slowly walks out and you just got the big empty foyer going on. I think having everything <laughs> wrapped in music leaves me not able to connect emotionally, which is weird because music causes me to have very big emotions, mm-hmm. but but not grandma music, uh, but not stage music. Mm-hmm. For some reason, that doesn't come across. It but didn't help at all that most I, of the performances in the movie are performances within the movie. <laughs> You didn't have to suspend much disbelief of people singing, bursting out in song. This is true. That did actually help a little bit because I took a class and we watched uh, Steamboat. Oh, God, that was a long day. I was I think that teacher hated me because I, it was a <laughs> class in melodrama. And so I kept just like leaving halfway through the movies to go outside and smoke a cigarette and come back in and just, I don't, uh, <laughs> I wasn't into it. You're not a melodrama fan? I don't, I see at the time I was like, oh, that could be good. Like watching movies that are like harrowing and dramatic and stuff. But I didn't realize that it's just like. Over dramatic. Yeah, that's yeah. Like too dramatic. I didn't know that that's the definition. Had I just looked up the word melodrama in a book before I enrolled in the class, I probably would have done myself a lot of good. Well, see, it seems like an, you know, a misleading word because you're like, oh, this drama is going to be pretty mellow, so we'll be able to get through it. <laughs> but it's not. I showed up to one class that I enrolled in only to find out at the, as I sat down and the professor started talking that the class was in Latin. Oh, oh well, wow. 
That's why you don't take classes at the Vatican. Uh, the uh, Sean, have you seen any Douglas Sirk films? We're, we're talking about melodrama here. Have you seen any of these Douglas Sirk uh, women's pictures or weepies? How do you spell the last name? S I R K. Oh, I was going like Cirque du Soleil, C I R Q U E. <laughs> Ooh, you're going the long way yeah. around that one. <laughs> um, I have not seen any of these no uh all, i've heard of all that heaven all that heaven allows um imitation of life is another very popular one of his i've heard of that um he did this run of melodramas uh probably for like through the 50s he's got a longer filmography but um that section is they're featuring some of them on criterion channel this next month and they are just like they're soapy and they're so good. They are beautiful films, and I feel like he really understands um, how to stage these like just normal everyday life things, but they're life changing if it's your life that it's happening to. Uh, and I just think they're very beautiful. I watched a couple of them last year, and I really kind of want to get back on that that boat. And I wish that I had a melodrama class that I could like talk about these. Someone would instruct me and like, oh, the the color palette is signifying this and such, and you know, I'd be very happy with that. See, I just watched Downton Abbey for that. Uh, got it. You watching That's the my new one? Soap opera. You, are you uh, watching the, the... the Gilded Age? Yeah, I yes. watched the first episode. Awesome. <laughs> So, uh, intermission, what do we yeah. do at intermissions? That was Sean's question. Yeah. What's your, like, what's your go-to movie snack? Popcorn. Are you, e- are you even theater eaters? Oh yeah. Oh, it's good popcorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like a, I like a popcorn. I like a raisinette. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a raisinette. I don't want good. a raisin. I've made the mistake of milk duds before and I like milk duds. Milk duds are good. They're going to pull a molar out, I'm convinced. Well, if I guess you've got bad teeth. That's, it's also that's a loud true. food. Like, the, you, you kind of crack true. it when you bite them. Yeah, yeah. crunchy. I'm, I have popcorn crunching concerns when I'm in a theater. I try to eat my popcorn quietly. I, I, I get like made popcorn fun of. is not as crunchy as it used to be. I eat my popcorn <laughs> one kernel at a time. Like, and Elizabeth is like handful and put face Mm -hmm. in hand. And I'm like very daintily. I wind up with, I never get the majority of the popcorn, whoever I'm sitting with, even even my children, like they always eat more popcorn than me because I eat it so very slowly. Uh, We get it. You have a family and loved ones. I go to the movies (laughs) alone and eat all the popcorn. Oh, I totally do that. (laughs) I like to have the ambition where I start with just one kernel. Mm-hmm. And then, or when I get a pint of ice cream, just taking little tiny spoon, like tip of the spoon, and then it grows to two kernels and a quarter spoon, and then it goes to four <laughs> kernels, and then suddenly I'm just like handful or giant fucking spoonful of ice cream, and then the entire thing is gone. But I'm more of a hot tamales or sour patch kids kind of guy. Ooh. I can't eat gummy food. Something about that texture. Does this? I love it. Uh, See, I don't eat candy at movies. It's interesting. I normally don't eat anything at, at a movie theater. Have you been to a dine-in movie theater? 
Yeah. When my mom and I saw a Star Wars and I got a beer delivered to me, and that was pretty cool. I went to, speaking of Downton Abbey, <laughs> the Downton Abbey movie, and got a special Downton Abbey cocktail and chicken strips and stuff. It's pretty <laughs> nice for a movie you don't care that much about. The, the best is... Um... I mean, I've done this at the Alamo Draft House, so that's my frame of reference. Mm. Uh, to go to a movie marathon where they do dine in, because um, a f- previous guest uh, of the show, Andrew Ford, and I went to Ninja Pendence Day a couple years ago okay. <laughs> on July Fourth and watched uh, kung fu movies all day long, and just ordered shit all day long. Like, bring that's me awesome. a pizza and a grasshopper milkshake, and you're sitting there mm. just buzzed with cheese dripping down your chin and then you're like i would like a pretzel now bring me a pretzel and Mm. they just do it it's so good i do love a movie cocktail the bell court here in nashville has some pretty usually good ones Mm -hmm. uh the at the 12 hours of terror which we were supposed to attend uh they do you went to didn't you i did yeah none of y'all i didn't end up well i didn't want to go and watch a mask for 12 hours Yes, that was the, the movies they chose. They I, I don't think choose. I have. This, I mean, it's horror I don't think movies. my They're taste. Shitty. I don't think my tastes are in line with the curator's taste of that <laughs> of that festival. After not seeing to go it. in place, yeah, I watched it from home last year, and it was great with the live chat. It was basically a Discord watch along the nice. whole thing, and it was awesome. And I wish they'd do that every year, at least as an option. The, but I got some cool movies I saw from that. That's where I saw Strange Behavior, which I really love. I saw mm-hmm. Mausoleum. That was a pretty good movie, too. I mean, they opened with uh, Wreck, Sean. You're, you're a Wreck head, aren't you? Yeah. I, I think seeing Wreck in a theater would be really cool. Yeah. That's the found footage Wreck REC recording? Yep. Okay. Uh, but they do... I, there's nothing quite like... Um, donuts and coffee in the movie theater as well like after you've been there all night long at about four o'clock they roll out the donuts and coffee (laughs) and you're watching Uh, mirror mirror at 2 (laughs) a.m yes and uh or they come and throw pop tarts at you which is (laughs) if if you're sleepy it's just a pop tart to the face is what's happening (laughs) Mm -hmm. so speaking of horror movies i think the lighting when uh, maria goes back to the convent and the nuns sing climb every mountain yeah it looks like scream four where it has that Vaseline on the lens, all of the light has that glow mm-hmm. to it. it a lot of the scenes of soap opera that. feel. But I think it works yeah. so much better in this than it does on like the hyper like HD Scream 4 super clean screen. It just looks very weird. This, it at was least, not it overwhelming like, at all. It, was, yeah. it totally fit in this. But in Scream 4, I just, because we watched that movie recently, yeah. I could not get over how that movie looked it was yeah. preposterous it, and it's all shot in like mostly the flat daylight and it still has that weird evening glow gauziness on it it's it so was so weird. bizarre so bizarre mm-hmm. so with with the glow i noticed it specifically it uh the captain is shot pretty flat up until he hears his children sing when he comes around that doorway, he's they mm. they've got the glow, they've got the gauze. Um, it's probably like a, a you know the equivalent of a, a pro mist or black pearl kind of filter now um, to give you that little blooming of the light around him. Uh, and it seems like the first time that he's shot that soft, and from there on, like 
as he softens as a character, he visually softens in the movie as well. And I thought that was really cool, like mm. use of cinematography to help tell the story. Yeah. It did seem to get softer as the movie went on. Now that you bring it up, this was not really something I was clocking that much in the first hour or yeah. hour and a half. Really in the first hour, it's only in uh 16 going on 17 mm -hmm. and oddly one of the shots where they're running along the river in do re mi but just one that's the only shot they do that for i don't know why um uh, i noted that the captain has some really great outfits we were talking about everybody else's clothes but uh his like christopher is, Plummer would disagree with you i don't care like the nehru style <laughs> jacket with the velvet collar and the velvet uh looking the green accent yes I thought that it's was nice. a beautiful jacket. But he wears it like the whole movie. I like yeah. his traveling clothes at the end. Of oh, yeah. He wears a pair of boots at the end of this movie when he's singing Adelweiss on stage. Mm -hmm. Damn, those are some fancy pants boots. <laughs> yeah, those are cool. Uh, so one thing that annoyed me, and this is like a personal thing. These kids have Macaulay Culkin and Home Alone syndrome, which as a kid, I thought children... I thought it was endearing to adults to be a snarky little asshole because like <laughs> I saw home alone and like my family thought I looked like Macaulay Culkin. It, but so this instilled like a real shithead attitude in me for it a while. Would. Like he is fucking I, awful I, in that movie. I know. And so, but I, I, I was a snarky little sarcastic <laughs> kid and like, you know, I'd rib my parents, friends and stuff and like talk a little shit and stuff like stuff that looking back on now, is like, Oh, somebody should have, put me in my place and knocked me down a peg and taught me some humility as an arrogant little asshole and that carried well into my 20s before I was well I still kind of am but I'm working on it each year I get a little better well to be fair you weren't in a famous singing family like these kids so maybe they earned it a little bit this is true <laughs> also I only had two siblings these kids have there's seven of them they've so. got to stick out somehow they've got to do <laughs> They gotta pull some shit to get any attention. In real life, there were nine of them. When that little kid at the start, Peter, says, I'm Peter and I'm impossible. I was just like, oh boy, here we go with this fucking kid. <laughs> Friedrich, uh, you mean? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Same vowel sound. Uh, the, the captain and the baroness announced that they're getting married. Uh, and he says, we're all going to be very happy, but nobody looks happy about this. The the captain doesn't really, the Baroness actually doesn't like, she looks well, kind of She has conniving. trauma from almost being hit with a ball in the throw the ball game. <laughs> Two, four, seven. That's five, six. Yeah. I love when she gives it to Friedrich and he essentially is just like, I'm five, bitch. <laughs> Like, he <laughs> said that to her. It's this whole little sequence. Everybody that we've seen, like at the beginning, they were all kind of shitheads and uh, a little rambunctious, yeah. but they had a, a lot of life. Then with Maria, they're very charming and outgoing. And now with the Baroness, they're all just listless. They all yeah. look like, <laughs> like they're on methadone. Like they're The just music has been taken out of their life. Yes, and uh, you called it out earlier that uh, when they do the, the Sound of Music number and it's yeah. sad, like that is very good production right there. I really, yeah, it's, it's sort of I thought creepy. that was cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the children 
go back to the the abbey or the nunnery to see Maria because they miss her so much. And this is where we find out that she's locked herself in solitary confinement, which the I guess the other nuns are probably kind of okay with based on her her actions before. She's not climbing a tree and scraping her knee, at least. Yes. Uh, and then they sing climb every mountain. Uh, yeah. what do you, how do you feel about this number? Cause it's a little different than what we get in most of the rest of the movie. I feel like I love this song, but I think this is like the biggest failure of staging. Like mm-hmm. they use lighting so interestingly, and there's interesting lighting in this scene, but then mother superior is like shot in the dark half of the number. Mm-hmm. And I listened to the court. I mean, the commentary and apparently the director really wanted to focus on the advice that is being given to Maria more than like on stage, you always have like this big actress with a giant voice. Yeah. who's like booming out this huge number, but it doesn't totally work that way on film. So they were going for like, this is Maria's live life number. And I like the, like the dialogue scene before this, like this movie makes Catholicism seem way cooler than it actually is. <laughs> Cause she's like, like in the beginning, I really liked it. Mar- they ask Maria what her lesson she's learned at the Abbey. And she's like, to find out what God's will is and, you know, act towards that passionately. That's a bad summation, but it's basically like live your life to the fullest. And like, I'm not a person of faith, but I think that's a really good way to look at living out your faith. Yeah. And like, they reinforce that here. She's like, this is not a place to hide from your problems. You can't be a martyr, like go the middle path, basically, like you were saying poor Josh. And like she teaches her that in this moment. And I think that's an interesting number, but it's, I don't think it's done very well. Okay. That's, I was wondering if I was the only one who felt let down production wise from nah. this. Like, and I thought maybe, unlike Sean, like I find the kids really charming, especially the little ones. Uh, <laughs> they, they hurt my heart a little bit and like in a very sweet way. Um, and, this one, but I love the message of the song. Mm. And I really, I think that that part is cool. And I've heard it done in other renditions um, taken out of context that I think I like more than the, the version in the movie actually. Yeah. This this is the only song I don't think I've ever heard. So mm-hmm. I think that mm. says something about this. This one never quite made its way into pop culture. It sort of has, but I'm not really surprised that you haven't heard it, but yeah, it's, it's vaguely familiar to um, outside of the musical. It's so not the biggest hit. I had a hard time telling the nuns apart. Um, yeah. Which one is played by uh, Marnie Nixon? Do you know? Isn't that the mistress of novices, the sort of nice one who likes Maria? Okay. The, the not the sort of not sarcastic uh, stern lady, the other. Yes. Like yeah. There are two main nuns. Yeah. She's that's Marnie Nixon, right? Okay. Which makes sense. I may um, be wrong, but I'm not sure. Like she has a very sweet or had a very sweet voice. Mm. Uh, but that's somebody who, um, if you're good at clocking voices in things, you would, you would name check her instantly from, um, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, the King and I, <laughs> a West Side, West Side Story. Story. Yes. Uh, my fair lady, she did the Eliza. Yes. Yeah. Uh, singing bits so the part originated by julie andrews and they wouldn't let her be in the movie <sighs> that sucks yeah that's another one of those big uh backlot fake london street musicals <laughs> yes 
the children lie to their father about picking berries, which I thought was just, that's a stupid lie. And it was very rude. Boy, I could relate to this scene of (laughs) getting caught in a lie Uh and then just like immediately shutting down. Like, uh, the berries, they're out of season. So they were blue strawberries. (laughs) They were so cold. They were blue. (laughs) <laughs> we listen we missed a little moment back at the abbey that i like where there's a postulant there that's like becoming a nun when mm-hmm. uh we first enter that scene and later uh when maria comes back to the house she's wearing that lady's dress oh that's a nice touch yeah. i also like in that scene where the uh nun is like once again not stuffy she's like you're in love and love between a man and a woman is holy so yeah you be in love don't go get it girl which is so surprising advice from a nun. uh, I like that Maria goes back to the estate and immediately she's like, guys, I just heard this new advice. Face your problems. I love that. She gives that like, she didn't hear it five minutes ago. You can't run away from your problem. That's such a nice touch. (laughs) And uh, so the Baroness is like, well, shit, Maria's back. I'm going to step out of this, which I, mm-hmm. from the sounds of it, I like the, the stage version a little better. I think it's a little yeah. stronger. Uh, I think this... Plummer might've had something to do with that too. Cause he talked about working with the writer on this scene that he's like, I want this to be more mature and we have actual development. Of course <sighs> they had to cut the two songs too. And that like the one song about, I forget what it's called. Like maybe nothing can stop it or something like that, that they sing about the sun's going to come up every day and there's nothing you could do about it anyway. And the Nazis are coming. So you can't do anything about that. <laughs> and he has like the mildest. No, I don't want to do that. Uh huh. Which is the heroism of this movie. But sadly, I think that's more relevant today than it ever was. Oh, yeah. Uh, both of these movies gave me moments where I was like, Ooh, I'm very uncomfortable because it uh-huh. matches up too closely to our current political climate. And we really should have learned this shit a long time ago. Well, they also both have moments we can talk about later where they really pat themselves on their back with happy <laughs> endings and stuff. Yes. Um, the, the couple, the captain and Maria go back to the gazebo or they go to the gazebo for the first time, I guess. Mm-hmm. And th- this is where I was really blown away. Like I wouldn't think of anything in this movie as daring, but the very long held shot of the two of them in the doorway, just their silhouettes and so it's gorgeous, a little bit of rim light and the blue glowing out behind them. Like you can't see their faces at all. You can't even see Mm -hmm. their eyes. And it looks almost animated. Yes. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Uh, It looks like the top gun sex scene. Ooh, no, that's spicy. That's <laughs> that scene left an imprint on young Sean's brain. <laughs> oh, this is what sex is silhouette and satin curtains, huh? All right. Mm-hmm. See, this scene, gazebo scene, left an impression on my mind, which explains a lot. This is what sex is <laughs> you sing something good, a nice little number, and then you look at each other in silhouette. Uh, and then suddenly, uh, Nazis, Nazi sh- shows up. Rolf is a little wannabe fascist. (laughs) I really like the transition from the big wedding bells, and then we come right down onto the big Nazi flag, and here they come. That kid bouncing 
on the church bell as it's ringing <laughs> yeah. and the kids like being like launched yeah. into the air on this that's wild yeah that's cool back uh, in that gazebo scene i had a i wrote down a note because i think it's this really feels like a trend like a transistory movie like it's not the kind of naturalism that you would get from other movies but it is way more naturalistic than like musical comedy like i don't know if you could call sound of music a musical comedy it's not mm -hmm. that funny but like this dramatic scene between the two of them like feels so much different from like a 40s 50s oh gee we're in love kind of scene but it's not yet the sort of like really cynical snarky 70s 60s late 60s musical when it was Vietnam and we didn't want this stuff anymore. Like it feels like a really weird relic of a very specific time period. Well, it is, this is, this is the last gasp of this kind of musical. I mean, yeah. two years later, uh, in 67 was like the big kind of revolutionary year at the Oscars where a lot of the new Hollywood talent took over and we had a lot more grounded movies, uh, with your guess who's coming to dinner and the graduate in the heat of the night, all of these Bonnie and Clyde, like all of these much grittier movies up against poor Dr. Doolittle that year. <laughs> like yeah. in, I, in history's rearview mirror, we know which ones are the greater films. Uh, and yeah. Dr. Doolittle was not even this era of Hollywood's best to go up <laughs> against that. This I definitely would have picture. guessed this was a fifties movie. Yeah. It's a fifties musical, which makes sense. It's from 59. Hmm. But yeah, this was both one best picture, which it was a slow year, so I get it. Like, the only competition is Zorba the Greek was the only one I'd ever heard of. <laughs> and then also, this was the top grossing movie for like five or ten years of all time. Yes. So, the the happy couple goes away on their honeymoon, uh, and Max takes their their silence because... What man answers the phone while he's on his honeymoon or answers a telegram while he's on his honeymoon? Yeah, from his children. Uh, yeah. Uh, to enter the kids into the folk festival. So yep. that's when he races back to town. The captain is still against the children singing in public, but he is also against Nazis. Yeah. But he seems more upset about the children singing in public, honestly. <laughs> we do get the big uh, famous gif moment of him ripping up the Nazi flag. But yes. Has unfortunately had to become more prevalent in recent online years. But I have to say, anytime somebody rips up a Nazi flag, I'm pretty happy. Sure. That's satisfying. Wasn't it fun when like watching Indiana Jones and it's just like, <laughs> Nazis, what a novel concept that we can just <laughs> yeah. make them out to be like complete punchline assholes. Yeah, much like the KKK. Oh, lordy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really think like... This movie, the Nazi stuff is so more relevant now because like when it was made in the 50s, you know, and then this movie in the 60s, it was really like post-war American, like this man is resisting the Nazis just like America did. And we saved the world and we're patting ourselves on the back for it. And like seeing it today, it's just like this simple resistance and having any ethics at all and not going with the flow of whatever's going on seems so much more radical in the face of the world as it is. It's really sad that it's just the minimum bar to clear. <laughs> right? It's the mildest, like, Nazi storyline of all time. Yes. They're, they don't even seem that mean. They're just sort of insistent. And still, it feels impactful. <laughs> but uh, this is where all of the, the action happens. And we're, like, in the last yeah. 
20 minutes or so half hour of the mm-hmm. film where uh they're the family is questioned by the nazis and they kind of make up this plan to go to the folk festival anyway yeah uh which i i the fucking butler sold him out that nazi asshole <laughs> such a jerk yeah the the look of this piece though from here on out where everything is dark everything mm-hmm. is the shadows before have been very blue and romantic and now yeah. it they're black mm-hmm. like you see behind the family and it looks surreal or stagey compared to everything else because yeah. it is like it falls off into blackness behind the family and there's um like you can see a little bit of the of the building in the street and then it falls off in blackness on the other side so yeah. it looks like it's taking place in this nightmare scape um and i thought that well, it then was they find really that effective. incredible location of the theater yes which that is like the cavernous beautiful uh, it's awesome that was a really big sound stage <laughs> the soundstage of Salzburg, Vietnam, Austria. <laughs> I, I love the way they have like the Nazis set up on the ends in the different column, t- like tiers. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so strange and interesting. Um, the Nazis want the captain to serve for the Third Reich, uh, and I do appreciate that. There's no just moralizing about it. There's yeah. no like struggle. It's There's a nothing. given. Yeah, yeah. It's he's like, no, I'm not I'm not going to uh sympathize with the Nazis. Like mm. I'm just not. Um the kids sing their a feeder saying song again, and as they're walking off into the darkness, um the little note of through the kids increasingly looking back like panicked. Yeah, at, at their their new mother and father, <laughs> like mm-hmm. what's going on? Like they're just doing this by the seat of their pants. I nobody wants to be there, and we're they're in a tight spot. Yeah, <laughs> damn, we're in a tight spot. <laughs> uh, and just the the whole staging of this, like you said, the set, um, the one spotlight with mm-hmm. like smoke going up through it just like yeah. cutting through everything. Uh, I think it's, it, it's evocative would be the word I would choose. Yeah. And then this, this is the moment where we get a big, uh, pat on our back moment. Like we'll see again later in, Oh brother, where art thou where the captain sings Edelweiss. And then, uh, Max is like, and he'll never may never see Austria again because he's going to join the Nazis. <laughs> and all the Austrians are like, Oh no, that sounds bad to me. Even though, you know, the Anschluss was like 90% popular in Austria and approved by the Archbishop of Vienna, even though we see the Catholic Church doesn't like it in this movie either. Damn papists. Yeah. <laughs> they run the family, wins the folk competition, but they don't come out to get their prize because they've run to the Abbey to hide. Uh and I, I like that the nuns are useful as yes. well. This is another like thing that seems even more useful now mm-hmm. is like the nuns are going to open the gate and the mother appears like, oh, do it slowly. Mm-hmm. Like just even interference and slowing people down uh, is so helpful. For me, that was straight out of Gladiator. Open the gate, Proximo! 
Do you want to die, old man? <laughs> I, it's a very specific reference. Like, it just speaks to the forces, forces, like, evil people who are doing this kind of stuff will always assume incompetence, so just lose their paperwork, and they won't kill you because they assume you're going to be an idiot anyway. Right. Like, you can help people out. And I think that is a lot of how people help, you know, Jews escape Europe at that time, was people, you know, losing the paperwork or interfering with them in some way so that they couldn't do things as quickly as they were supposed to. Like, it's a very simple way that seemingly normal people can help out in situations like that. Like, don't answer questions. Well, and we get the flip side, uh, because as everyone is searching for the family, and you get the really nice moment of um, is it Gretel and Maria, where mm-hmm. she's like holding on to her and calls her mom or mother. I th- like mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very good actual emotional touchstone now that the family is in danger. There's actual stakes now. Mm-hmm. The rest of the movie, not so much. This, much more. Uh, yeah. The and- rest of the movie is vegetarian. <laughs> no stakes. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's nice being on your show. Are you trying? Are you trying to up your your puns per episode count? Is that what this is? That's not a pun. Uh, I'm sorry. Is it not? That's a pun. Oh wait, I lied. It's uh, now snowing at my house. Apparently, I guess it is a pun. Oh. Damn it. Um, but uh, the of course the Nazi to find them is Rolf Liesel's ex bow, uh, mm-hmm. and he's. He literally about to blow the whistle. <laughs> I yep. was, I was like, Oh, that's, that means to blow the whistle on somebody. Like he's actually going to blow a whistle. So the rest of the Nazis come running. I like the mirroring of the whistle being used for the family in the beginning. Mm. And then it's the, the thing of danger in the end. I like that. That is interesting. Well, I think he good. does blow it on stage. Mm. I think he does. And then he sees Liesel and then he's like, when his lieutenant comes, he says, oh, I was mistaken or whatever. I think the movie works way more with the, the captain taking the gun from him. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by the legitimate tension that filled this movie when the Nazis are shaking the gates, walking yeah. gate to gate and shaking it and fl- shining their flashlight. When the captain does take away his gun and he tells him, like, like you'll never be like them. And then Rolf tries to prove that he is a good Nazi. Yeah. But it, I I feel like there's a whole other movie, uh, other story that you could explore Rolf's character. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the people and the thing is like a uh, man in the high castle, I guess have, have done it where who decides to, to go over to the other side and what, what sort of, and I hate that this is like so kind of stereotypically uh, stated, but what kind of masculine influences has Rolf had in his life that in order for him to be a man, he's ratting out this other family. Like mm-hmm. that's what he thinks he's, he's on the cusp of owning all of his own actions. And this is what he decides to do with his life <laughs> is yeah. turn on the people he's known and loved because the Nazis are offering him something that he thinks will make him bigger and better and cooler than everybody else. And I like that moment is so fraught between we see somebody taking 
what would seem to be a more passive approach, but he's protecting his family and actually standing up for his rights. And then the person yeah. being the aggressor and the active one is the one in the wrong. And I think that that dynamic is really like, it lends a lot more drama to the scene because we know the, you know, the weight of history on these things uh, mm. than it otherwise would have. I think that scene would work a little better too, if it hadn't badly dyed this man's hair and eyebrows blonde, <laughs> like if he wasn't so visually Aryan, it would make sense. Like you're not going to be one of these people. Oh they yeah. only want one thing. And it's disgusting. Yeah. Um, so the, the, Oh, the, <laughs> The the family runs to the car, and I like the the sisters uh, going. We've sinned. I love that's a pretty good <laughs> joke. Those crafty nuns. You can't trust a nun around a motor vehicle. Yep. yep. They'll they'll pull some kind of wire thing out of it. Yeah. That's, well, they don't need that's cars. My knowledge they can of fly. engines. They pulled the wire thing out of it. Yeah, mine too. I was like, I don't know what that is, but apparently <laughs> it makes the car turn over, but not run. It's important. Well, <laughs> and I was confused because I, I was thinking it was a fuel pump and a distributor cap. The second mm. thing definitely looks like a distributor cap, but did they have those then? <laughs> like, are you I, really are you really asking me and Russell? They must have had fuel pumps. I could buy that for one of them. Looks pump shaped. Yeah, and it's got like a little nozzle thing. I'm like, okay, that's yeah. kind of it's a fuel pumpy thing. Uh, I believe it. So then the family escapes. Uh, there's an article that went around a while back um, called something like uh, when movies just ended because they used to know how to end. And well, also they didn't have to have credits at the end of movies. Yes. Just the fact that it's like monsters dead. We're done. Like (laughs) we've gotten across the line and we're done. Like that's it. Fucking movies over guys. Go home. You've gotten your, your three hours worth. (laughs) The lack of credits being front loaded on these old movies. is always a little shocking to me because I'm often looking for that closure where I'm like, okay, let's see what this song is as they sit in a dark room and let some names roll up. But when the movie just ends three seconds after the last (laughs) shot and then suddenly I'm back to my TV menu, it's it's like I'm teleported instantly back into my living room as opposed Mm -hmm. to slowly making the journey back. On Disney Plus, they advertise Hamilton for you. Yeah. Immediately, <laughs> immediately afterwards, and it's like, well, there's David Diggs. That's I'm back in modern day <laughs> instantly. I do like the opening credits with musicals. Mm-hmm. It gives you a nice time for the uh, so you can do the overture during the uh, credits. I've I, actually, yeah. I've taken to um, on my my Plex account. Uh, you know, you can set it up to play uh, trailers before your movie. And this is an an anthem to Sean. Uh, I've requested more trailers in my life. I said, <laughs> Plex, play me two trailers before I watch a movie every night. Yeah. And that's what we it have does. to remember. Sean is sort of like the people of Austria and that he buries his head in the sand. <laughs> when the trailer comes. <laughs> I love that you called me out for being. I think you said psychotic for sitting in a theater and closing my eyes and covering my ears and humming when I hear see a theater. <laughs> I'm just imagining that happen. If you go to this theater with Sean and then you're watching the 
trailers and suddenly la 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 well if i do if i'm there with a friend i try to subtly <laughs> do it so I, I don't really tell my friends that i do it so i just kind of sit there and, and like <laughs> try to be real sneaky about it i love it <sighs> that's uh i i famously get weepy at uh movie trailers i mean i get weepy at movies in general but my ukrainian in this movie for uh, tear okay when um he says the thing about i don't know my children yeah and oddly enough when the children are first introducing themselves and gretel is actually sweet to maria everyone else has been mean oh yeah and she's like i like her i'm like and i yeah. think there is something the parental part of me that is like my youngest is now six and growing out of this phase mm. and I'm not just our discord friends, but my, my local friends, I've got people in Austin as well who have all had babies recently. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of me that's like, shit, it's done. Like I'm entering a whole other phase of my life. Cause I'm done with that now. Uh, yeah. And I think it makes me a little wistful for, for a little, for a little nugget to hold and snuggle and puke on me. <laughs> I definitely tear up at a few moments in this. I can't remember exactly all of them. But definitely is one where he joins the like the kids singing, mm. and then after that where he apologizes too. But also the one like the scene where they you know dance and fall in love, yeah. And like Maria is so taken off guard, and they're like, "Your face is red," and she's like, "Oh, I guess I'm not used to dancing." Like she comes up with all this stuff on the spot. Josh, did you connect with this also being a step parent and having Maria come in as basically a stepmom? Yeah, that's interesting. There was that aspect of um because it is it's a oddly fraught relationship to be on the the adult side of um because I when you're a kid it's also it's rough but you don't have a whole lot to compare it to, you don't have a lot of yeah. understanding. Now not only as a step parent but having had two of my own biological children it is like, and you never know where the line is of, um, when do I step in? When do I say certain things? Because you don't respond to me the same way that you do your natural parent. It's very, it's, it is, mm -hmm. it's, it's a tough line to walk. And that early on thing, um, cause I've gone through several seasons of this with Olivia when she was like real little, she was like about three she loved me because I was big and she could climb on me and that was fun. Mm -hmm. And then there was a couple years of kind of being obstinate. And now we're back to very sweet. Um, and we play together all the time. I think part of it is I can show her Mario brothers now and <laughs> we, we can play <laughs> games a little bit. And uh, so it's a little bit easier. We have more things we can connect on. Um, but yeah, it definitely brings a little bit of that up as well. I want to play Mario with you. Oh, it's it's so good. Uh, you know, the Nintendo Switch. You talking 2D? Oh yeah. Oh, never mind. But then we do we do also Mario Kart and the new Mario Party as well. Mm. So, yeah. I'm terrible at 2D Mario. They're way too hard. Oh, <laughs> yes. They I can do like the OG one, but then you get into like 2 and 3 and I'm <laughs> trash. Give me 3D any day. Uh, watching a little kid navigate 3D space is very amusing. It gets frustrating because <laughs> you want to grab their little thumbs and like 
to, no, <laughs> yeah. the camera goes like this. Uh, uh-huh. But it's really funny to watch like her play Mario 64 and that kind of stuff. <laughs> so that brings us to the end. Of we got to rate Sound it. Of music Don't forget here. to rate you it, Sean. Let's, yeah, let's rate it Let's here. rate it. Um, I think this movie would have been a three out of five for me had it not been three hours, but that knocks it down a half. So I'm going to sit at a solid two and a half out of five. Um, there you go. It, it, it was just it was just a marathon session of a movie for me, and it was almost like an athletic experience watching this thing in one sitting. I felt yeah. exhausted by the end of it. But I'm really glad that I watched it because, like I said, knowing where so many of these references come from and then seeing some of like the sequences in the actual Austrian village and mountains were definitely worth watching. So I'm yeah. happy that you chose it, Russell. Josh, okay. what did you think? As so often happens uh, in the show, I believe my rating went up a full star um, talking about it here. Uh that just makes sense when you're yeah. analyzing something more fully. Well, and I appreciate the movie way more after talking about it with you two. Yes. The, it also, I had a deep appreciation for it, the, its place in history and um, its technical achievements. But I think I'm going to compare it to something that it should never be compared to. But the other night I watched the Scott Adkins movie one shot, which is a military action film, which seemingly takes place entirely in one camera shot, uh, which I also appreciated from its technical standpoint, but I didn't like the movie, right? It's, it was too mean. And, um, the military stuff was like too dour. And I'm like, I want some, some Jason Bourne kind of bullshit in my military thing. <laughs> like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I want satellites that do all kinds of stuff. Um, but the, uh, that movie I had to give like maybe I think I gave two or two and a half stars because while recognizing it, I don't want to ever go back to that world. This it is long, but I enjoy, especially that first hour or whatever, the vibe of it. Like if I'm by myself in the house and I need to put something on to, to keep me company, this is the perfect thing to put on. I understand why, um, there was another class when I was in elementary school that played this all the time, like as your movie day <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Um, and I understand why you would put it on. Like, it's just, it's very soothing and comforting kind of movie and beautiful to look at while, while it's going on. So I'm going, I'm going four stars. Wow. Yeah. For me, I mean, I have nostalgia for this anyway. And so, I mean, I love all the grandma songs. I love all that stuff. It's a gorgeous movie. I think coming to it as an adult, I really even appreciated that so much more about it. Like just how well it's technically made and like it's extra in every way. It doesn't have to be. They didn't have to have so much of a budget on this. They didn't have to go to Austria and film everything there. Like, I mean, I love everything else about it anyway. And so when it comes to that, like that pushes it up. It's still like an imperfect movie. I wish it had more teeth to some of this stuff, but I still think this is a four and a half star for me. And a heart. Aw. I love it. No one ever no one else ever uses the hearts except for me. <laughs> I always give hearts. Hearts are how I see if I liked the movie or not. Yes. 
Like, even if I give a, like a movie a two-star rating, even if I sort of like it, I can still give it a heart. Mm-hmm. Or if I appreciate a movie and give it like three and a half stars, but I didn't like it, I don't give it a heart. Yep. That is... I, I do struggle with that when I like, I like a trash movie, but I really yeah. dig it. So I'm giving it a four out of five, even though the quality of it and content or whatever yeah. is a one and a half or a two. I'll give him a, a Max Maven's Mind Games a star and a half and a heart. I kind of just want to put a note at the top of each of my litter box that just says this rating is based on my experience watching it, not the quality of the movie overall or something. That's what I put on like all my lists. It's about my enjoyment of this movie and not anything necessarily else because I don't know anything. That's mine is because I'm very regimented in these things. So I have to have a system. The system is how much would I like to revisit this movie? I so, do that in rankings, yeah. Yeah, the the two and a half is like, if it's on and I'm around, I wouldn't necessarily turn it off. Anything lower than yeah. that is I'll go out of my way to avoid it. Higher mm-hmm. is like, I'm definitely doing this again. Uh, so four stars, I'll probably find myself putting this on again yeah. at some point. I mean, two and a half stars feels low, but that's the midpoint for ratings technically. Yeah, it it's weird. Yeah. Like, it does feel like a, a little like a damning with faint praise kind of a thing. Yeah. Two and a half for me is an experience. I was like, it it was fine. Yeah, yeah. that's generally what I put. Too. There was some good. There was some bad. And overall, I was just pretty even keel on the whole experience. Yeah. If it's two and a half of the heart, it's probably slightly better. If it's yeah. two and a half without a heart, not really that good. Well, Russell, I love when you and I, we watched The Raid recently, and that was the biggest <laughs> swing you and I have ever had. Me, yeah, four and a half stars. I hated that. You, a half star. <laughs> yeah, it, that went on my list of worst movies I've ever seen. It's, I find This is so fascinating to me. I love, Russell, I love your letterbox reviews. Like, I appreciate your, your ratings, but I love when you write things, because you are so often on the opposite end of the spectrum from me, but I love the way that you think about them. And like, I appreciate your thought process. I have, there's another person who I'm fascinated with on letterboxd who frequently has rankings similar to mine, but I hate Mm. their reasoning. I read their reviews and I'm like, this is utter shit. I hate this. I don't want you on my team. And Russell, I'm like, I feel like we could have, um, what is, was it Lincoln's cabinet where he had everyone who was on opposite sides, so you oh, could yeah. come out somewhere in the middle. Like that's what I feel like with, yeah. with reading your reviews, Russell. What was it like? Something of rivals. I can't remember. That was the big door. Yes. Kern's good yep. one book about it. Team of rivals. That's it. Yeah. I feel like there are a lot of people who follow me and who realize if I give a movie a bad review, they love it. So that's mm-hmm. why I try to write reviews because <laughs> I know that's helpful. Yeah. I don't get if why. I mean, I understand if people don't have the time or the spoons to do it. But I'm like, if you're using Letterboxd, write a review so I know what you thought about it, so I can have a thought about what do I think about what you thought about it, and then do I want to watch that movie based on? My reviews are more for my personal memory of just that's if also somebody really asked me 18 months from now, what did I think of that movie? I'll be able to go back and just give you a couple little notes. Yeah, because I, I, especially with since COVID, I think I've mm-hmm. doubled or maybe even close to tripled my movie watching. Well, I definitely did. It's, last it's year. getting hard for me to keep them all track. That's why starting Letterboxd about a year ago now was when I started using it. It's been like a real game changer. Yeah, I think it's great. 
That's why I like to rank things, because every year I always read these, here's the 10 best movies of the year. I'm like, I couldn't tell you two movies I watched this year off the top right. of my head. While we're in break, I would like you to compile your two or three favorite movies from 2021. I mean, I have the whole list, so we can okay. for that well, whenever we get to it, yeah. All right, well, let's take a few minutes, and cool. we'll get back to it. All right, nice. What do you say? Welcome back. What do we do? Like my brain is is frozen, literally frozen That's, right now, Sean. Literally, or well, else you don't have to inter- You don't have to introduce it. Just we Did, can just start right away with Russell's list. All right, twenty twenty one movies. What do you got, Russell? We want like a what type? Top five? Sure. Yeah. Okay. These are new to me watches. These are not twenty twenty one releases. Five to one, please. Five to one. Okay. First, I'm going to go through new to me, so not from 2021. Number five, five stars. Harlan County, USA. Covered Good on movie. this very podcast. Yes. Great movie. Number four, Goodbye Dragon Inn. Never heard of it. It's in Taipei, which, so whatever country that is. Uh, it's about this uh, movie theater that is closing, and it's showing this 1967 martial arts movie. It is the epitome of slow cinema. So it's like you see people sitting and watching the movie. You see, like, the custodian lady going around, carrying a bucket upstairs to catch a drip. There's a guy who's there sort of cruising, trying to find a gay hookup. That never seems to happen. Uh, We see, like, at the end, maybe I shouldn't spoil that, but, you know, there people come to see this movie. It's on a rainy night in this sort of dimly lit Taipei theater. It's fantastic if you're into slow cinema. I love it. It's from 2003. I saw that in theaters at the Belcourt. Beautiful. So good. Number three have is actually seen, a short film. Oh, go have ahead. Have you seen... I, it's a French movie. Oh, uh, fuck. I can't remember its name. The, it's a woman... It's about a woman who... Uh, Ratatouille. Is, sorry, <laughs> working, working at night as a prostitute, and at one point it shows her make a veal cutlet start to finish. So you just sit there for like an eight-minute shot as she batters the meat, flours the meat, throws it in the pan, everything. I don't know. Uh, Jean Dielman. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. That's, I think it's on Criterion or something. That's been yep. on my list forever. Yeah, that's a real... That was one I watched in a class. And yeah, I think I would love that. One of the longest experiences of my life, so you would probably love it. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> it's both French New Wave and Slow Cinema, so that was very much me. All right, what's okay, your next number, one? What was your short number film? Number three is actually a short film from... I think it aired on Adult Swim. It's Jack Stauber, and it's called Opal. Have you seen this? No. It's like a mini musical. It's really good. It's like a claymation, creepy musical. What era of Adult Swim? This is from 2020, so. Just oh, okay. Before. Okay. Yeah. It's I haven't new. Kept I think you can watch the, it online. Yeah. I haven't kept up with the newer stuff. I did watch, I rewatched, um, what is it? This House Has People in it? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's that had a whole ARG that I followed for a while. Oh yeah, that whole thing was yeah. fascinating. My my oldest was uh, she's very into those things, um, so she's the same reason I'm I'm watching uh, anime now. Yeah, is to like find things to connect with her about. I think I prefer unedited footage of a bear a little bit. Oh god, that is so good. That one's really good. Yeah, I mean none of them are going to be too many cooks, but unedited footage of a bear is really good. Yeah. Okay. What's your next one? Number two, we talked about him 
Oh, this was also covered on this podcast. I saw this in theaters at the Bell Court too. It's Federico Fellini with eight and a half. Yes. Did you do uh, a bunch of them? Uh, those Fellinis? I did that one, and I did. Is it Seance and a Wet Afternoon? Is that mm. the title of it? Yes, I watched that one. I wanted to get to more of those, but a lot of them were on the weekends and stuff when I were. I mean, on the weekdays. Yeah. Seance is pretty good. It was. I'd not, like to go back to eight top. and a half. That's yeah, after your like episode, I think you guys should, because you really gave that guy a lot of leeway. <laughs> he's a piece of shit. He sucks. He just looks cool. I I feel like that's my takeaway from that movie, but I... I, I think it was by the end of the episode, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, I definitely, he has a literal harem of women <laughs> that he sorts by floor into age classes. Yeah, that's a great yeah, sequence. That huge of a fan of the guy. <laughs> and was your number one? It was another 2020 movie, so I get to these like right after the start of the year. Mm-hmm. This one really got to me. Uh, the Kid Detective. Have you guys seen it? No, it's uh, you and was it George? George likes it. Yeah. yeah. Have both recommended it to me. It's on my list. Um, yeah. And I, I it, picked up a copy and I haven't watched it yet. It's really worth it. It really got under my skin. Like, it's so much darker than it seems. Not, like, necessarily the content, but just, like, mentally. It it gave me Under the Silver Lake vibes. Is is it that accurate, or...? I haven't actually seen that, but I okay. think I know sort of the vibe of it. It doesn't start there. See, it's about Adam Brody basically plays a sort of Encyclopedia Brown kid, all grown up. And there was this unsolved case from when he was a kid that he sort of haphazardly follows as an adult. Uh And it seems like sort of a, you know, wry sort of weirdo comedy. And then it just, it's just very sad in some ways. And (laughs) like the ending, like the way it ends up towards the end is just very complicated and strange. And uh, yeah, really got to me. That that sounds good. Cause I was just picturing like a, Harriet the Spy-esque Nickelodeon kids movie that you were talking about. So Yeah. No, it sort of has that, but that's what it used to be. Do you want my 2021 releases? Yeah, what, what was your best? These of? are a lot less interesting. Okay. So number five was Fear Street 1978. Yeah. I really liked that that's one. Fair. That's surprising. I that was I my favorite one as well. 1666. 1666 was good, but I think 78 was more of a piece. Yep. I agree. Four was Broadcast Signal Intrusion. Yeah. Loved that movie. Three was unfortunately Get Back. I think the Beatles are kind of bullshit and so overblown, but this was basically like, as I wrote in my review, it's like watching the videos of Hitler petting his dog. Like, oh, these are people. (laughs) It's so intimate. I think the second half is kind of boring when they go to Apple Studios. It's like, this doesn't look as interesting as the big weird soundstage you're on. Mm -hmm. Number two, The French Dispatch. I'm a sucker for a Wes Anderson late period movie. What's your guys' favorite Wes Anderson? My friends were giving me a hard time for having not seen Steve Zissou. Uh, my favorite Wes Anderson is probably Tenenbaums. Yeah. See, that's the early ones I haven't seen. That's... I was like head over heels for Moon Eyes Kingdom. Uh, I haven't seen that one. I still have a very deep appreciation even of Rushmore. Um, I liked Rushmore when I saw it. That the Jason Schwartzman character in that, in his interplay mm-hmm. with bill murray i think is fantastic and yeah, i think that works well the uh 
the encapsulation of it when they're at the dinner uh and the the line about the OR scrubs that's are you a nurse well they, these are OR scrubs oh are yeah. they <laughs> bill murray like chokes on his drink it's that gets me every time it's so dry and so goofy um, it's probably been the, 10 years since i saw it i should yeah. revisit Rushmore. it's there's something about it i was going to say I that like. or um grand budapest hotel I, I didn't care for French Dispatch right. as much because French Dispatch had too many characters for me where I was never quite able to grasp and like hang on to one of them. And so it was I like it was too that. much of a too much of a revolving door movie where there were certain characters I really wanted to stay with and they were in and out of the movie in a flash. That's uh, fair. I like the brevity of it. Actually, personally. Let me revise that. Probably Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's a good I watched one. that one, but it did not stay with me at all, really. That is... I don't know why. That is one that uh, I get definitely choked up watching it. Like, that this, that band of misfits. I, I really love that movie. See, Moonrise Kingdom has one of my favorite movie lo- exchanges of all time. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I guess, warning here, but there's Animal violence in that that somebody kills the kid's dog and the like the young girl girlfriend who the like main nerd they sort of had this you know kid romance anyway she's like was he a good dog and the kid's like who's to say <laughs> i think that's so like not profound but it sounds so profound it's, yes i think it's such a strange line i really like that anyway my number one was uh the sparks brothers documentary oh okay it's kind of a boring answer but i th- thought it was great it's uh, like a almost three hour or more than maybe. Yeah. No, it's only just over two hours, but it's that's a long documentary. And I was like riveted the whole time. I got to see that one in the theaters too. That's awesome. I have not, uh, I haven't seen that or French Dispatch yet. Um, but I believe I picked up both, <laughs> both of them out of my guilt and trying to rush through things at the end of the year. Um, and were they on sale? And so you just bought Yes, them they were. Because you have a problem. Uh, yep. Uh, <laughs> and I did manage, I managed to get through 370 films last year. I didn't get quite that many, but I think I got to something like 320, which was, I think maybe I saw less than 100 the year before. So it was really striking. Yes. I had, uh, I think I had more in previous years, but uh, it's definitely shot up this year. We're not even through January yet, and I think I'm at like 35 movies. <laughs> yeah, I have a surprisingly high this year. I started watching movies at work, so I'm like, I'm going to watch one movie a night, which is, yep. you know, three movies a week at least. Like, I didn't watch movies before, uh, like two years ago or something. Like, the whole Discord and meeting other people who have been interested in it, and also just like getting over being afraid of horror movies. I have digested so many. I mean, I did uh, Hooptober last year and actually finished it. Oh, nice. So thir- 31 movies right there. Yeah. I've never successfully done all my all my reviews for a Hooptober. I've watched all the movies, but I've never done, I've never gotten through all the reviews. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have 37 reviews so far this year. So nice. that means 37 new movies. Transition the show now, Josh. Transition the do show. It. Now. Do it smooth, too. You know what else is smooth? 
the vocal stylings of the Soggy Bottom Boys, which we are introduced to in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The oh, brother. 2000 film <laughs> <laughs> from hey, the Coen I, I, I'm proud of the effort. That, was, that wasn't bad. Thank you. Yeah, that was good. You could also have said, what else is smooth? The smooth, smooth feeling of Dapper, Dapper Dan, Dan hair cream. <laughs> Dapper Dan Brill So what is Brill Cream? It just, that, it just makes your hair shiny as fuck and no, brill cream greasy? No, Brill Cream is a different thing. Yeah, it's like okay. medicated, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Dapper Dan is supposed to grow hair. Is, is a pomade. Dapper Dan is just pomade. Yes. Um, which I used to use uh, regularly on my hair when I had a, you know, um, I didn't go for height so much. I went for more slicked back, uh, mm. much like his, but I still had the kind of the undercut thing. I cannot picture you with slicked back pomaded <laughs> hair. I mean, it I wasn't, can. wasn't like this, like it still had a little bit of, a little bit of lift. I to don't it. know how people do that. When I have to slick mine back, it only goes all the way back. No, you gotta you gotta tease up the front a little bit by brushing oh, it the wrong that. way and and drying it mm. and stuff. Yeah, it's a whole rigmarole to, yeah. to deal with it, which is why I just have this right now. It's fine. <laughs> so uh, we are going to talk about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou from two thousand Coen Brothers film starring George Clooney, uh, John Turturro, and Tim Blake Nelson as our heroic in quotes trio. Um, mm. Shot by Roger Deakins, it is notable for being, I believe, the first major film that had a digital intermediate, which is what gives it its very specific color timing because they didn't have to physically rewash the film in mm. different baths to give it different colors. So they were able to get very experimental and really kind of push the sepia tones. And it's like oddly desaturated in certain parts of the spectrum. Uh, that yeah. gives a very specific look like it's like a tobacco burst to this film. Basically it looks, it, yeah. and the South looks golden the whole time and, and very, very beautiful. I think. Yeah. It looks like fall. Yes. Which, yeah, which I, we don't get here. <laughs> mm-hmm. When color correction was done on physical film, they would, they make a copy of the master film and then fuck with that as far as dyeing it with chemicals and everything. Mm-hmm. How do you make so a copy you, of they film? They would always have an insurance policy, basically. You literally, you'd always have that master. That's the raw footage. Yes, which is when they remaster stuff, they go back to that and then have to recolor time it again. Um, mm. And you would get a very broad spectrum um, of prints because as you run the film through the bath, it collects the washed off um, uh, chromium or whatever the salts are from the clear parts of the film. And so it becomes less effective over time. So the more copies of the film that you run through the same bath, that looks different. And then you have to make a new batch with hopefully the same ratios uh, of chemicals, which then that one might look different than the last one you made. So before the digital intermediate came about, you know, your print could look a pretty wide spectrum a difference from the actual uh, intended look. So this was like a big deal to get something that was so specific and could be distributed widely. And this was still not distributed digitally. Um, I worked in a theater a little bit of this year and this was still everything. Everything was prints at this time. So with the digital intermediate, you just right click and hit save as there you go. 
sounds so hard. Like just yeah. jer- just drag a little bar on a computer and make it a little more red or uh-huh. a little less blue. Yeah, but the integrity of film, Sean. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just I saying. I, I, marvel, I marvel at the old ways. Uh, oh, the yeah. fact that people were able to edit coherently and add a score and color time things, and yeah. it was all done by artisans, people who I don't know. I I can't even begin to understand the craft that went into so many of the behind the scenes things. Well, and, and now everything is so easy. Now it's just grab your camera record some adr at the end and like everything else you can do the job of hundreds of people now yeah with the pores production software yeah <laughs> uh it is i think uh important that roger deakins was the one to do this because he is currently um he reportedly does not give a shit what he's shooting on it's like, if we want to shoot film, if we want to shoot digital, we want to shoot a big camera package, little whatever. Videotape. Yes. He puts whatever kind of the the same uh, thought process into, into work, uh, no matter what the medium is. Uh, and he'll try to get a good result out of it. Um, so and, he's a professional? Yes. As opposed to some people who are very hoity-toity and will only shoot <laughs> film uh, and would never, you know... I very much of it am, uh, would be an evang- evangelical. There we go. Evangelian. Yes, I'm an I'm a neon genesis evangelian <laughs> for uh, digital filmmaking, and you know I think the uh, the Tarantinos and the Christopher Nolans of the world have their place, but uh, really for practicality's sake, like the Robert Rodriguez in me is like shoot digital. You can do so much more with it. Um, you can shoot as long or as little as you need to, and your your image is going to look like what's on the monitor. Like that's yeah. that's great. And I would watch the Robert Rodriguez directed sections of the remake of the original Scream in Scream Two before I would watch any Tarantino movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is our second Deacons. We've also done Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Oh yes. Mm. And so that just goes to show that movie was all digital. Yes. And I don't even know if you're Roger Deakins. I don't even know what you're shooting. Like, how how do you set up as a cinematographer when so much of the movie is computer generated? Oh, the, it changes like what it means to be a cinematographer. Th- okay. Deakins in and of himself is a very good guy to follow. Like to go down a rabbit hole of this stuff um, he had his own podcast. It's on hiatus for the time being because he's in production. Um, but he, he gets like deep in the weeds with this stuff on his podcast. Um, I believe that's even where I heard the story about the DP that had to reshoot Scream uh, because the first version got scrapped and the first DP got fired. Um, I remember you saying that. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, but there's a whole lot of videos on YouTube and Deacons has been very open in documentaries as well, talking about his process and melding the, the, the computer generated world with the the real world. And like, what's his podcast called? Um, the Deacast. I think it's just team, team Deacons or the Roger Deacons podcast. Definitely sounds like something I'd like to check out. Yeah. He like, for technical it's not even that technical he's very conversational and it's him and his wife uh like his wife works on set with him and is his collaborator 
and he gives her a lot of credit, which I think is very beautiful as well. And moving from Deacons, um, what connection do you guys have to Coen Brothers movies? I'm trying to think. I've seen some. No but... Country for Old Men, Fargo, no. Lebowski. Yes. No. I've seen the ones pe- people haven't seen. Uh, I actually watched a Hail Caesar earlier, like mm-hmm. a couple months, maybe last month or maybe this month. Uh, not a very good movie, but Clooney's really good in it. One of my big notes here was that I think the the Coens really bring out the best of George Clooney, who is not someone I generally like. But it was pretty good in this, apart from his. You need to put a little more emphasis on that title. Hail Caesar! Uh, Hail Caesar! (laughs) Oh, Tor, that it were so simple. Oh, that it were so simple. I was turned on to Clooney in uh, From Dusk Till Dawn. I've seen Clooney in that movie when I was about 15. I thought he was pretty badass. Um, Is that like a vampire movie or a romance or very generic title? Yeah, it's well, it starts off as like a Tarantino-esque mm. robbery movie and then halfway mm. through takes a hard turn right into Robert Rodriguez vampire shit. It, it's a mm. pretty wild bonkers movie. Interesting. Uh, Josh, how about you? Um, I um, This is where I feel old because I like grew up with the Coen brothers because of uh, Raising Arizona. I like all that I've seen. Yeah, that was always around. Uh, And -hmm. then I have a very distinct memory of um, my parents renting Barton Fink. Oh, yeah, I love Barton. And my dad, like a lot of times they would rent movies um, and watch them. And then I would watch them like the next day before we return them or whatever. Uh, And they watched Barton Fink and my dad was like, don't, it's not, I don't understand it. It doesn't make any. And I watched it and I was like, the appeal. I was like, this is wonderful. Uh, You know, I was like 12 years old or something. Um, Did uh, they do the Hudsucker proxy? Yes. I like that one too. Yep. That was their follow up to Barton Fink. Yeah. And um, uh, Blood Simple is literally... I watched that one because of this podcast. Yeah, thank you. Great. Uh, mm-hmm. It is one of my very favorite movies. I think it is like such a good debut movie. And yeah. um, making something out of very little. They, I think they do that very well there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, I was going... Like I lined up at the theater to go see Fargo <laughs> and Big Lebowski. Um, I've seen almost all other movies since then in the theater, um, except for Buster Scruggs, I guess. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that one. Which was a Netflix premiere. And then I went and saw Joel Cohen's Tragedy of Macbeth uh, a couple weeks ago, which I thought mm-hmm. was just a very beautiful experimental staging. Huh. Yeah, Buster I still Scruggs get to see that. had some good ones and some bad ones. I've heard that. A couple that stood out to me. Um, I like a short story movie. I like Fargo a lot. You mentioning Barton Fink makes me think of one of my favorite Simpsons (laughs) jokes where the kids get a fake ID and they get into a car and they're like, we're going to go see an R-rated movie. And then as they drive away, they go, Barton Barton Fink, Fink, Barton Barton Fink. Fink. (laughs) Barton Fink is so weird. I love that movie. That one really borders on the Lynch kind of thing with the dark old Hollywood mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And uh, the uh, one-eyed uh, John. John Goodman. His face from, yeah. Yep. Also in this movie, Sailing Bibles. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's 
well, yeah, we'll dig into it and get to the music when we get to it. Uh, yeah. So our main trio uh, are on a chain gang, and we start with them escaping, which I like that we don't learn until later that George Clooney is the kind of de facto leader because he tempted the other guys into escaping because of a treasure that he has supposedly buried. Yeah. That's, I like that. It's, we don't, I feel like a lot of times you would get, that would be the first 10 pages of the thing is them like in the bunkhouse in the chain gang talking about it. And it's like, yeah, I can see that here. We just start in media res. I do love when a movie scraps the first five to 10 pages Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. your normal screenplay. And then you just figure it out as you go along. And I'd say majority of the time that works in the benefit of the movie. Yeah. Well, that's like screenwriting 101, right? Start in the middle of the action. Yep. Um, I really love, like speaking of the music right off the bat, this little twangy banjo, Big Rock Mountain, Big Rock Candy Mountain mm-hmm. as they're running mm-hmm. along. I love this song and the little vibe that it One sets. That's so fire was burning. I'm guessing at the time neither one of you were aware uh, of the like the upset in country music that this album caused, this soundtrack Don't caused. Don't make assumptions about me. I'm sorry, I'm from Tennessee. I know, I know. This was a goddamn smash hit. Yes. Like this the, especially the soundtrack and I don't really understand it rewatching it, but this was a cultural phenomenon for some reason. Mm-hmm. It, it has legs that stretch into country and Americana until today. Mm-hmm. Like, this is still yeah. a stone solid reference point for things that people are doing, and, uh, you know, a whole like subgenre basically of Americana. The, the, it really should be. Yeah, the classic dark. I love this old folk stuff. Yeah, it's so good. It's so, I think evocative and it feels even though I myself am a transplant, I've spent most of my life in Nashville. Um, Mm -hmm. It feels like ours. You know what I mean? Like it's like, there's certain things that can only come from certain places. And I'm like, this is the, this type of South. And I really, well, the movies kind of felt that way too. Mm -hmm. Like I remember watching this movie with my grandparents who do not watch movies. Okay. And what rewatching it now, I'm, astounded by that because it says like goddamn two or three (laughs) times in this movie like they are very conservative don't ever curse or say anything bad this is the only uh this is my grandfather who the only other movie i've seen with him was i went to the theaters to see the passion of the christ with him oh my okay (laughs) yeah yeah this movie like it did uh it pulled in the olds as they as Mm -hmm. they would be um like no other Cohen movie ever has. Yeah. I mean, it really did reach across a lot of divides. Did they also do Inside Lewin Davis? Yes, they did. That has better folk music in it and it's a better movie, but I was that is a nice through line between the two. Yes, I was totally that was my line when I was like, they've made two of the best music movies uh no, with this and uh, Inside Lewin Davis because Lewin Davis fucking hurts to watch. I listen to that album all the time. Yes. That movie is astounding, and as someone who mm. tries to, uh, well, I guess does have a career in the arts, yeah. like, <laughs> it speaks to me so, in ways that, of, like, all oh, of so the music painful. overall. You like Big Rock Candy Mountain? What do you think of? Uh, yeah, like, that stripped-down version of 
you know, twangy banjo with a shitty microphone. Mm-hmm. That reminds me a lot of the Harlan County yes. music. Yeah. And so I, I really like that kind of folk music. I don't quite know what like you call it. Yeah, but like it's stripped, like bluegrass Appalachian folk. Yeah, but like yeah. the stripped down stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I remember liking the the big song uh, "Constant Sorrow" mm-hmm. at the time, and now I, I I definitely hear it a lot. And both like I think people started using different microphones, or at least trying to get that more dry sound where you're adding like a low pass filter. So you're not getting that much bass. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of mm. up here. And um, that's also how people sing very nasally in that kind of music. That's that too. Yeah. But uh, I like the music. It was funny that the other day I was out in public and all of a sudden, after I chose, I chose this movie because it's just it's musical and there's an aspect of pursuit to it, which I thought fit well with Sound of Music. They're singing families in both of them. Yeah, I was out in public, and all of a sudden I hear, "Hush, little baby, don't say a word." As like it was the weirdest song to hear playing <laughs> in public. As I was like, this has to be some kind of cosmological sign that i chose the right movie for this episode um i i like it i was not as enraptured by this movie as i think i was the first time yeah same here i think it really has a tone that doesn't work anymore what what gleam it seemed to have the first time round, uh i enjoyed it this time but i wasn't i wasn't like in love with this movie i think it has a very 2000 sense of humor where it's like look at this man who cares about his hair isn't he such a metrosexual like it you know and it's also the whole meta narrative of the sort of the odyssey that's on it Mm -hmm. like in a pop culture that has been entirely suffused with meta narratives it doesn't have the same zip i guess it did at the time it must have really surprised people yeah, I, thinking back on that Romeo plus Juliet movie and this, which came mm. out within a few years of each other, and people losing their minds at the novel concept of yeah. transcribing an old piece of work into something more modern. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like we're we're so surrounded by that 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 doesn't even it's not even mm-hmm. a drop in the bucket. You have to break the fourth wall and twist it into the fifth now if you want get it, to get people talking. Yeah. Wow. I didn't feel like I was going to be this much of my minority on this one. Oh, I like it. I just didn't. I think it's like, fine. It it didn't have what they had in Blood Simple that grabbed me or oh, Fargo or mm. some of their other movies. I just found that this one didn't grab me. Like, I really enjoyed yes. Turturro and yeah, uh, great. Nelson. I think they're great. As I think the all the performances are pretty good. I do too. I, I you know, I like I I get what Clooney's doing, and I do I enjoy what yeah. he's doing. It's silly. Me too. It's all encapsulated in that fight scene towards the end of this when he fights his wife's <laughs> yeah. boyfriend, and yes. he's like that that physicality and what he's doing, and I like that he's often the butt of jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I like the energy that he brings to it. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I appreciate all those things as well. Like my fourth note was, uh, this is goddamn delightful. 
<laughs> so that's kind of where I started with the film. And uh, although many times when people ask, uh, talk about comedies, I'm like the Coen brothers. That's my type of comedy. I don't do a lot of like normal, straightforward comedies They're They don't appeal to me. Um, I've grown my tastes a little bit over the last few years, but this type of stuff is very much like very dry. Um, there's a moment where there's a reaction shot from the, from one of the bloodhounds that it's, I'm like, it's so, it's so well-timed like the edit of it and the Coen brothers, uh, edited this along with, uh, another assistant. They edit under a, a pseudonym of Roderick Jane. Um, so there is something that is very, and I think, um, I'm trying to remember if it is every frame of painting on YouTube that did a uh, profile piece on the Coens and the way that they, they shoot shot reverse shot something reaction shot. And they showed like mm. a Cohen scripted movie versus a Cohen directed movie. And just the precision of the timing that they use with their writing, because their writing is very specific. Um, I mean, I first it first came to prominence with Fargo with the accents and all of the stuttering and stammering, especially that William H. Macy does in the movie. And all of those, none of that is improvised. Every um, every huh is in the script. So they're super precise about what they want. They're famous for, uh, at least in the production world, for shooting basically 12-hour days and you're done. Like most productions, unfortunately, run over. Um, the Coens do a lot of pre-production and you're on set and like you are wheels up and rolling out in 12 hours. That's it. Like they only shoot uh, a much smaller uh, portion. I think for No Cruncher for Old Men, they shot like a third as much film as is standard on a movie of that length. Um, they're just very precise filmmakers and they know what they want. And there's well, something maybe in just that Sinatra types. Yeah. Just one and done. Yeah. Yeah. The, you paid me to make one movie. Re regular Clint Eastwood's over here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's something like the whole little, uh, when they first get on the hand cart or whatever it is, the pump cart with the guy on the railroad, um, and just their running dialogue underneath him giving the premonition of, of like, who is this guy? Wait, he's a blind man. Why are we listening to the blind man? Well, you see the blind uh, are often uh, given a gift of, you know, that kind of stuff is I, it's so fast. I just, it really hits me. I have a deep appreciation for this stuff. Yeah. I just felt like Robert Ebert on this movie where apparently he said, all oh, the scenes in the film were wonderful in their different ways. And yet I left the movie uncertain and unsatisfied. Oh. Like, I feel like each scene is good at, on its own. I also think the movie really suffers from the fact that having read up on it, uh, apparently neither of the Coens had ever read a, uh, the Odyssey mm -hmm. and they just put in the parts that they knew about. Yes. I really laughed when I read that. <laughs> yeah. Rewatching the movie, I was like, oh, this tracks. You put in the Cyclops. It's stuff is kind of just randomly thrown in there, too. <laughs> yeah. Um. I really like their the fact that they uh, make characters repeat lines, either yeah. like someone's mimicking somebody else or somebody repeats it. Um, and I think Clooney 
is fantastic at that. The whole, damn, we're in a tight spot. Just Yeah, that's one of the only big laughs this got out of me. Like, yeah. It's really funny. They keep doing it. Yep. It's like he can't. He's, he's this swindler and he can't think of anything yes. else to say in the moment. He's so silver tongued the whole rest of the time, but damn. <laughs> I also really liked how they repeated that same scene with the authorities the next time, like after they meet the gangster guy. Yep. And they basically have the same dialogue. Yep. Uh, yeah, these, these cops, whatever, prison guard hunters. They love Torch and Barnes. Yes. <laughs> That's why I think they're into that more than they are catching people. Yeah. Well, they are cops. Uh, I do. I appreciated both the fact that the cops are the bad guys in this uh, and the realistic look that the uh, the big political machine in the area co-opts the progressive values to make himself more palatable to the common man. He sees that the tides are shifting and that they don't mind uh, a mixed race musical group. And this guy who has yeah. never had a thought about it before is suddenly like, you know what? I'm okay with this too. I'm going to co-opt it and we're going to run with it. <laughs> like, Yeah, I do like the deus ex machina at the end of yeah. Zeus coming in to save him. What do you think of the the lead cop played by Daniel Von Bargen? Do you guys I know kept this thinking, guy from anyone else? No, from, I kept thinking he was the guy uh, Horatio Alger, not Horatio Alger, the guy from <laughs> CSI because of the glasses. I kept thinking he was going to whip him off. David Caruso? Yeah, David Caruso. <laughs> he kind of looks like him. Uh, this guy, I know he's really funny on Seinfeld as George's boss, Kruger. And then he was also a Commandant Spangler in Malcolm in the Middle. So I, I know this guy from sitcom stuff, but I enjoy he he's not given a whole lot to do, but I do no. think he has a pretty scary screen presence with that yeah, blood. I mean he's the devil, he should be. Uh I know him from um Silence of the Lambs. He's uh Who's he in that? He's one of the cops. He's like the oh. the, the SWAT uh guy when they're going into the, the building in Philadelphia. Um mm. he's the, the commander for that. Uh, in the Chris Isaac scene, <laughs> he's he's in that mm-hmm. one. Um, but his character is like the man with no eyes from Cool Hand Luke. It's like, yeah, that was a very direct, reference. yeah, definitely pulled from that kind of thing. Um, he's also very much like the you know where the title of this movie comes from, right? No, it's from a Preston Sturges movie mm-hmm. where about a director who wants to make a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it was made in, like, the late 30s. So this guy wants to make a really, um, like, dramatically forward depression drama. And the studio is like, nobody wants this. They just want a funny comedy from you. So this, like, dumb idiot, try, he's like, I'm going to go out and live with the poor and see what their lives are really like. And there are a lot of misadventures and stuff. And he ends up in prison because he gets attacked because he's giving out money to everybody. And he attacks, it's a very convoluted plot to this movie, but he ends up in a prison just like this, and he has a warden like that. And the uh, movie theater scene in this movie is basically taken directly from that movie, where in that movie they go to a, an African-American church, and they watch a Pluto cartoon, and everyone laughs, and so he's like, people just want to laugh, and that's my final thought on making movies. But that movie, uh, Sullivan's Travels, is... Mm-hmm. 
very much in the style. I mean, the style of a lot of this dialogue and especially Hudsucker Proxy has that mm-hmm. same very fast. Um, I think the boardroom scene in Hudsucker calls back to that explicitly of like, uh, yeah. when they're when they're trying to talk him out of making his progressive picture, and the one is like, it needs a few laughs. Another goes with a little sex in it, and yeah, <laughs> it's like which is a really fun joke for a '30s comedy to actually have in it. You don't yep. expect that. You're watching it, yeah. I really like Preston Sturgis. Uh, Cartier had all his movies for a while, and I watched four or five of them. And his screwball dialogue is fantastic. Yeah, I think for my money, he and Howard Hawks were probably my two favorite to to do that. Mm. Yeah. Um, so after they fled the chain game, they end up at Pete's cousin's house and they get their chains removed. Yeah. And then he rats on them. I really liked uh, uh, one that got a good laugh out of me was uh, Pete yells at Clooney for stealing from him. He's like, I borrowed it until I did know he was going <laughs> to yeah. stab us in the back. Uh, the The plot, such as it is, is they're supposed to go to Clooney's farm or or homestead to find the treasure he buried, but they have to do it within four days because the, the uh, Tennessee Valley authority is going to flood the region. Yeah. Which, uh, harkens back to, uh, Norroy, the curse when, when they flooded the town. Oh yeah. yeah. Good call. I did not even put those two together. I haven't watched that one yet. There's a. I've heard it's really spooky. It's a good. It's a good spookum. There's lots of spookums in it. Uh, I want to watch it. I'm also. I'm just fascinated by the whole drowned town thing. I think that's so. Yeah, it really made me think of. I thought it was at this period, but apparently it was like the 1900s or 20s, like that big uh, Pennsylvania flood that wiped out a whole town. Mm-hmm. I thought that's what they're making sort of reference to. Um, there are there are several Tennessee towns, and there's a book called Flood, written by the same guy who wrote uh, All the King's Men, Robert Penn Warren, um, that is about a failed uh, or an actor who's kind of on the ropes, and he goes back to his hometown that they're going to flood, um, and it's just the the drama uh, of someone who's made it and then has to go back and uh, get their just desserts contrasted with the whole town going away. Uh, And I don't know, there's something very evocative about that that I I think is really cool. Sure. Your whole life being swept away, your origin. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, There's a lot of, I I think, I do not remember that basically this movie is kind of commentary on the transition from the South through industrialization where with Goodman's mm. character and through other we have a kind of a takedown of the old religious ways where the bible salesman now is a con man and the music is changing and they're you know we see them when they're breaking the stones they're breaking the stones for railroads that's Um, what i was gonna ask this is in every movie what are they doing breaking i was too but then later on a few minutes later we see see the train going by and you see all of the white gravel stones that they had been chipping where the train tracks were. So I had the same question of what are they hammering rocks for? And then 10 minutes yeah. later, the movie answered. Yeah, um, I didn't know. So that. I, and then, you know, the trans just, just interesting commentary, I think about the transition of the South from the old ways to the new. Yeah. I'm not sure it's saying anything about it, but that it happened. I, the, 
I agree. It's, I do. it's definitely taking the piss out of That's the, sort of the whole clan. movie. <laughs> yeah, the the, yeah. the fact that uh, what has been subtext through the whole movie, George Clooney says at the very end when they're like floating on the on the thing, and he's like, "They're going to put us all on a grid, and we're all going to have wires connected to us, and yada yada yada." <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very much like the the Coen brothers MO, right? Of like you and all of your your earthly worries are really existentially not that important. You know what is existentially important? What's is that? your soul. Yeah, this scene where people are singing Let's Go Down to the River. What the hell is that singing? That's the it's, best it's, I think this is the best scene in the movie. It's beautiful. This 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 scene I was completely engaged. Yeah. And I think there are two moments in the movie where uh they really use like they transcend into a mythicality like that the Odyssey mm-hmm. deserves and they really use like the southern church here for that. I think the other one is the like the underwater scene after the flood has come through. Love but that shot. One, yeah. This one really reminds me of uh Frodo and Sam encountering the elves in the woods in the Lord of the Rings. Like, it's the same exact energy of these mythical people floating by, and they're just, like, looking around. I love it. The voices, how how it's mixed, I was just picking Mm. up, like, a different person's voice. Yeah. Slow, like, Mm -hmm. kind of pop out above the mix. And so it just felt angelic, and when the camera would move, the sound mix would move with the voices. Mm -hmm. And then Tim Blake Nelson like steals this scene it's his scene to steal but man he's so good in this when he runs out in the water and talks about salvation and his sins have been washed away and just seems like truly believes like this is his fresh start now that's i think um i really like clooney in this movie i think he's having a lot of fun Mm -hmm. but tim blake nelson i have a hard time picturing him doing anything else because this role is so like he inhabits it. Like he's never not contorting his face. He's always like his movements and everything just feel like this, this doofy character. And uh, I think casting directors sort of had that problem too. Cause he always seems to play this sort of guy. <laughs> yes. Did, did he ever play Barney rubble? Because he should be Barney rubble. <laughs> That's totally That's fitting. A good cast. Yeah. I mean, Goodman was Fred. Yeah. Do you guys have any connection to sort of like this hymnal Southern music? I was raised in a Presbyterian church. And so my religious music was just a pipe organ. You go mm. through the verses one through four. You go to the bottom of the page, verse two, bottom of the page, verse three. And people did the churches I went to, people did not sing well. There was no harmonizing <laughs> like this. There was no like, oh my god. Because if I if I experienced music like this, I probably yeah. would have felt more like the Holy Spirit alive in that church because yeah. of the harmonies and everything. But no, this this was not my experience of religious music. I really like this kind of like beautiful religious music. And it's always strange to me because I'm very much an atheist. This stuff really moves me. And I think it's just because it's like really beautifully written and like, you know, if it's arranged right, no instrumental choral music is just gorgeous. But I love all this sort of hokey religion music, the kind they play later, 
later with banjos and all that kind of stuff. Um, my only connection is that uh, the company I work for owns the uh, the record. So buy it on vinyl or CD wherever you pick <laughs> up music. That would be a nice <laughs> vinyl to have. Does that mean we're sponsored? I'll, you know what? I'll have to talk to legal. No. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> the less people that know about this show, the better. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It means I can keep keeping full songs in of Can't Hardly Wait and movie soundtracks. <laughs> Man, at this part of the movie, I wrote down everyone in this has a different Southern accent. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Tommy definitely does. Um, yeah. is that, are, so you, does, are you guys uh, there yet? Meeting Tommy? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So oh, I did forget that uh, Delmar knocked over a Piggly Wiggly, which I did not realize is around at this time. <laughs> but apparently Piggly Wiggly was one of the first self-service grocery stores, like founded in the 19-teens. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I did. I mean, I thought it was, um, uh, whatchamacallit, one of them there are anachronisms. Uh, yeah, in this movie, it feels like it. So, what would you guys trade your soul for? Because being able to play guitar well doesn't seem like a fair trade to me. I mean, I'm not using my soul, so I'd sell it for probably most things. <laughs> a large pizza. Yeah, why not? No mushrooms. I'll trade you your soul. I'll send you a pizza for your soul. Okay. It worked out for Bart Simpson. Yeah, I was going to say, this is going to be a like, real This is Bart. exactly where my mind is going. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the I mean, Tommy is obviously Robert Johnson. Like, and we're meeting him the day after his famous... Uh, well, he's also Tommy Johnson, which is the guy that Robert Johnson stole that story from. He's a real person. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Much like uh, Babyface Nelson is a real person. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I love the, it's almost um, a uh, Eric Roth uh, kind of a thing. Of, um, you know, uh, with the feather, Tom Hanks, box of chocolates. Who's that guy? Forrest Gump. There Valentine's Day. Yes. Val- <laughs> Valentine's Day. Uh, the, the guy who wrote Forrest Gump, it's that kind of a thing oh. where it's like they touch on all of these situations that happened in the South kind of in this time frame it's mm-hmm. like a your your cultural tour of the south where everything gets yeah. name checked at least yeah and generally only name checked yes yeah it's it's there for window dressing for the most part yeah especially the character of tommy who i don't know why they keep bothering he has maybe five lines yes he yeah he tells the story of selling his soul to the devil who yeah. is the description of the jailer yeah blank eyes and pale face or whatever uh, i do like the crossroads as a crossover between southern sort of southern uh imagery and the crossroads of like the greek mythology where the mm-hmm. sphinx where oedipus met the sphinx on the crossroad and had to answer the riddle uh or the movie crossroads with uh, ralph macchio and with steve, britney spears steve Vai. Uh, i went britney spears also <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. you're not alone okay <laughs> <laughs> So we next are going to the uh, the music studio where we get the great Stephen Root, who oh. is an absolute wonder on Barry. Professional creep. He, he's incredible on Barry. He's so good. Yes. He's on all those HBO shows, isn't he? He showed up on Succession as a famous creep. 
Oh, is he? He's in a, an episode where they go to uh, choose the president political gathering, and he's like a oh shit, that's guy right. who propositions yeah. Shiv or someone. Yep, or no, uh, Cameron's girlfriend. Um, Willa. The this is where you get some real big face acting from Clooney as he's oh, making God, up the song. The worst. So, oh. what do you think about? They just jump. There's no like fucking around or trying to like figure out the song or like <laughs> like look at each other and maybe there's there's not a single the hint movie doesn't have time for that that I know so I, I felt it felt so jarring this time to just it really is jump cut to Clooney's face in a completely different voice <laughs> and it's just like I thought we'd get. Maybe a little montage of like the songs slowly coming together no. like by accident, but mm-hmm. no, it's just it's just it's all there mm-hmm. right from the beginning. Yeah. It, the whole Did thing you guys is there. Remember this being a bigger part of the movie? Because I was I remember this being the driving part of the movie, but it barely mattered. Yeah. I remember this being a big scene. Yeah. And the main takeaway I have this time is whatever that little vinyl recorder thing is. <laughs> that that little thing is rad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, I like that. Uh, this guy will pay you ten dollars to sing in his can. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote this point in the movie. Everyone in this movie is blind. <laughs> yes, there. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's supposed to be Homer somehow, but that doesn't really make sense. Uh, I think Homer is supposed to be Homer. Homer Simpson. Now, Homer no, stoked Stoke, the yeah. governor later in the movie. Ah, whatever. No, I don't think so at all. He, <laughs> Homer he, was blind. Yeah, he doesn't fit the, the Homer role as like the... Uh, well, it makes sense because he was like the recordist of the, the, of writer, the adventures. Yeah. yeah. So... It's like, clearly... Oh, yeah, we haven't read it. <laughs> There's a mighty good at playing and a singing. Like, <laughs> it's there's something so dorky and charming about it that I, I can't get past oh yeah he's great um i like do you think there's any significance to the w-e-z-y call letters wheezy yeah (laughs) i don't know uh there's got to be something there yeah i don't know what it is uh maybe it's a jefferson's reference when they walk out in the parking lot again um and the we get our first view of uh, charles durning as the governor yes and he walks in, and they're trying to talk to him. And he goes, "I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker." Yeah. <laughs> it's such a man. He is the best part of this movie. I wish this movie were about him running for governor. He's so good. And Durning, I think, is one of those dudes that, like, I don't know, he had to have a career that spanned like 50 years or something, right? Uh, yeah, I just learned to look him up trying to figure out what I know him from, and I don't know what it is, because I definitely know his name, but he is in everything. Yeah. He's a two-timer on this show. He was in Home for the Holidays. Oh, and he's very sweet as as the dad. He yeah. was my favorite part of that movie. Yep. That was yeah. that little scene that he had basically stole that entire movie for me. Yeah. That's, That's what every scene of this movie he's in does for me. He's so funny. I love one of his sons, I think. Just the, the attire that he and his sons wear in one of their pants. Oh, yeah, where they wear I swear their waist it's, it's at their waist. just below the nipples. Yes. Like, it's, <laughs> it's at nipple level, this guy's belt. 
That was proper. That's when you wore your waist at your waist. Your belly button. But, uh, and his, like, he's just grumpy. Uh, and apparently he's <laughs> based on a real guy. And there's yeah. something in me that delights in the idea of a real man walking around, smacking his kid with a hat when he mouths <laughs> off to him. And like, yeah. just kind of old grumpus like that. It's really yeah, funny. Being the host of the good radio show and then getting off the end. You dumb idiot. Yeah. What are you doing? Get over <laughs> yes, here. Yeah. <laughs> I love later in the next, like the next scene we see him where he's in the restaurant and he's like, you, you going to have to go ahead and write my, uh, concession speech piece, now. Yeah. And he throws his hat at him. He's like, give me my hat back. Yes. And then he takes it back and he throws it at him again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the boys get picked up by George, not Babyface Nelson. <laughs> yeah. He's, which was not the real Babyface Nelson's real name. So it's. I don't understand what they're doing with Babyface Nelson here at all. It's very confusing to me. I I just like his arc that he is on top of the world when he's shooting at cops. Then he thinks he's not being chased anymore. And he's like, he feels worthless. <laughs> and then when they're going to electrocute him, he's so happy. He's somebody again. He's important. Yeah. I Shooting the cow. I don't like it, but it is funny. Yeah. I know uh, you're gonna... Later on, when they're walking him through the streets. And somebody calls him a cow killer, yeah. and they're walking with a cow in the procession. That really made me laugh. The look on his face when the woman in the bank whispers baby face. Yes. And he yes. looks like he's about to cry. It's so funny. And that lady's is so funny. There's baby face Nelson. She's <laughs> so It's so funny. Man, that when the car hits the cow, that is an incredible CGI. I did not realize that was CGI. And apparently the ASPCA or whatever didn't either, because they really had to show them how they did that effect for them to get the no animals have been harmed in the making of this film thing. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. It looks incredibly real. Yeah, it's upsetting. Uh yeah. I mean, the the cow getting shot. Um is it Tim Blake Nelson that says, Oh George, not the livestock? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like it's such a good line. Uh, it's so funny. And that actor, your folding money has become unstuck. Uh, I love that the car is just spewing money out every single window <laughs> as it's going down the highway. I love that for some reason he asks him if they can handle a Walter PPK. And like, is that just a James Bond reference? Why is that in yeah. this movie? And then he pulls out a Tommy gun. This actor, he's in most of our many Coen Brothers movies. Um, and he's just one of those like that guys, which yeah. I think the Coen brothers are uh, just great for going back to kind of their stable of actors. Um, <laughs> but he's a New York dude who, you know, always plays these wise, wise guy gangster types. Um, mm. And he apparently well, he's, he's in Leon, the professional. Yes. He's the fuck up super sketchy dad. Yep. That, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he's also that movie, Leon, the professional. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the more I think about it and the older I get, the creepier that movie becomes in high school. I did not quite see that movie the same way I do now. I've imagined that <laughs> I have been wondering because, um, I am, uh, I believe two years almost to the day older than Natalie Portman. Um, so very, very close. You know, 
and I loved that movie when it first came out. Had a crush on Natalie Portman. I feel weird about it now <laughs> as a 42 year old man, <laughs> like as a, you know, a 12 year old Natalie Portman or whatever. I'm like, is that fucked up? But it wasn't then. <laughs> I get that. But is it now? That's how I felt about Friedrich and the sound of music. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a child. I love it. Um, and, um, this actor, Michael Bedaluccio, uh, is also, he's so devoted to the Coens, <laughs> to the Coens, that he is even in the spinoff slash sequel to Big Lebowski, uh, The Jesus Rolls. What? Yes. You don't know that movie exists? I've, I mean, I've never seen The Big Lebowski, but I've definitely never oh, heard right. of some spinoff sequel to it. It Torturo took his character and got the rights mm-hmm. and then self-directed his own spinoff. And I've heard nothing but bad things. Yep. And that's a shame. I like Torturo. He sounds like a Southern bell in this movie. Uh, one line I loved was Jesus saves George Nelson withdraws. <laughs> Just a stupid line. Uh, I like that so, when they go into there to rob the bank, nobody reacts at all for some reason. Yep. Uh, so weird. Is it because they are so used to it at this point in time? I don't know. I don't know. Why it's like bank, bank robbers are such a part of the culture that it's yeah, just maybe. common, I guess. Yeah, I, I didn't quite think of that. Even when he shows that his jacket is full of what look to be s- sticks of dynamite, nobody is seems mm-hmm. very plussed about it. Did you guys play a Red Dead Redemption 2? That's what this made me think of a lot. Oh, I did. Yeah, yeah. I never played the story, though. I only just messed around in uh, the online stuff. And that's one of the best stories of gaming for the last 10 years, I'd say. Uh, I got lost on my horse and <laughs> wa- kept walking into areas where I would die immediately. Like, I'd encounter somebody <laughs> and they'd, they'd insta-kill me. Uh, and then I'm like, I'll have to get back to this game. <laughs> I started up every few weeks thinking I'm going to play it. And then I'm like, oh, no, because I'm going to get sucked into it. I got sucked into Skyrim. Oh, it's one of recently. those. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, no, I, this is my oh, own so game. it's so much more now. rich than Skyrim. Oh, God. See, don't tell me that. That's, it's calling my name now. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a huge investment. Man, is it worth it. I love that game. Okay. It's sort of a slow cinema game in some ways. Uh, I did like the... Um, the zombie mode of Red Dead Redemption. I never played the first one. That was pretty fun. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite song? Uh, we we didn't talk about this for the last one. I had the note for both. For both. Uh, so what what are your favorite songs out of these? For some reason in my mind, I mean, I like all these Southern ones. I really like, oh, come angel band. Mm-hmm. I like that song a lot. But I mean, all the ones, it's so hard to pick. They're all sort of on the same level. Down to the River to Pray, just because the way the movie is, is yes. fantastic. Um, I I wrote, I dig this I'll Fly Away song, but I do not remember how that goes. I'll, I'll fly away, oh Lord. I'll fly away. Oh, morning. yeah. That's a I like that one a lot. Um, or probably the the one on the river earlier and 
I think oh, for Sadam, you little baby. No, going to uh, see the going down to the river to pray. Uh, yeah, oh, mm -hmm. going down to the river. And then Sound of Music, I think content-wise, I liked her song about self-doubt. But overall, uh, probably Hills Are Alive at the Sound of Music is the one that's gonna stick with me the most. I really like uh, something good from Sound of Music. I don't know why, but I just love that like little small song at the end. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I like so many of those, but that one, is, I don't know. That one has a special significance to me. Uh, Elaine Stritch sings it in her one woman show, and I really like that version. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I like. Uh, so my next note is uh, Steel and Pie from the Windowsill. Come on! You... Oh, I'm sorry. I do this all the time to him. <laughs> I get so excited that we have a guest that I just forget he even exists. <laughs> uh, I like the Sirens song. That's a nice song. Yeah, the. I think it's very Go to sleep, little baby. It's very haunting. And it Yeah. You and me even make mm-hmm. I like the jug of moonshine with the triple X on it that yep. they're making him drink. I like that they have to use that on him because he has a wife, even though we don't know that yet. So he doesn't want to sleep with him. What are the sirens in this movie? Because nothing is actually Yeah, it's a very weird scene. Are they just Thief women who <laughs> well, they say later they knock him out and they turn him over to the police for the reward money. Yeah, so this is how these women make their living is singing by a river, waiting for men with bounties on their heads to come strolling by. <laughs> yeah, it was the 30s, everybody was horny and out in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> hey, these movies take place at the same time period. I never thought about that. Whoa. It will take place in the late 30s. Yeah. In the golden days of the 30s, as the Sound of Music opening says. This this movie's so dirty, and the Sound of Music, everyone's so clean and dressed up. Well, they were in Europe, and they had money. As George Clooney says later, uh, what is it? We're going to have one of those periods of enlightenment like they did in France. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wrote at some point in this movie, Stephen Root sounds like Andy Griffith. <laughs> we got to go down there and get the other. Uh, the whole uh, Cyclops sequence with John Goodman. Um, I'm going to skip them stealing a pie from a window <laughs> But leaving money for payment, which yes. I love. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, they're right, living high on that uh, Babyface Nelson money. Yeah. Uh, they casually steal a car outside of a little grocery store. And I, I was like just wondering, that. when did when did people have to start locking their cars and using car keys? Because for a while, cars had no security whatsoever. I was just wondering when that became a thing. Well, after FDR turned everything industrial and brought these people from the north down to our shores. <laughs> uh, uh, I have to say, I'm when I go places, I always lock my car. But in my driveway, it's probably not locked. And my parents do that too, and I don't know why. And my garage is definitely not locked. Like I've locked my car all the time. Nobody come find me, but you could <laughs> get into my garage and take all of my frozen foods uh, while I was sleeping, and I would never know. <laughs> you keep them in your car? <laughs> <laughs> no, the garage isn't for the car. The, gr no, the garage for your frozen foods. The garage is for the frozen foods and the Topo Chico. <laughs> <I see. laughs> 
You keep Topo Chico just in stock, huh? Uh, either Topo Chico or um, uh, Liquid Death. One, one of the two. I like a nice. People actually buy that. Yeah, I like a nice bubble water. Hmm. So do I, but I've never bought Liquid Death. Uh, it's, uh, they they got me with their great packaging. <laughs> yeah, I like to I like to listen to Ghost and drink a Liquid Death. I feel very metal. Mm. <laughs> I've never had that impulse. <laughs> It's uh, it's very melodic metal. It's very operatic metal. It's like prog rock uh-huh. metal. So it it's like if Lawrence Welk did metal. It really kind of is. It's <laughs> it's sort of dorky and Pink bubbles metal. Uh, that's what made me appreciate it because I'm like, Sean and I have talked about. Sean sends me like like not Norwegian black metal, but occasionally like heavy music. Like close, and I'm like, he makes me watch movies about Norwegian black metal. Oh, did you guys yeah. watch that? And then we watched uh, Heavy Trip, a yeah. comedy. Oh, that one. Okay. Uh-huh. You didn't watch the uh, um, was it the Jonas Ackerland one? That Satan I, one that came it. out yeah. last year or before. I haven't seen that, but I've seen the documentary and the the fictional whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one with the, one of the the Culkins. Yep. Yeah, I didn't know that. Vice did a really good one called One Man Metal about one man black metal bands. That was a three-part, 45-minute mini-documentary that I really dig. That's very interesting. I love those things. Um, So, uh, Pete hears the sirens sing for the car. They go out. There's some sexy women. They lure them to sleep. When Clooney wakes up, it cracked me up because he immediately goes, My hair! hair. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) every time. (laughs) My hair! This was 2000 when just saying the words horny toad counted as a joke. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, yeah, so Pete has turned I think into the scenario a scenario. Is funny. Yeah, uh, I am worried about Delmer squishing this toad, chasing after it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Same thing with the chicken. When when they're earlier in the movie, when they're diving after the chicken, yeah. I'm worried about. Yeah, they that almost chicken. land on it. They do. Yeah. <laughs> There's a shot in Arrested Development where Jason Bateman is driving a car, and. A chicken goes halfway under the bumper before it runs out from under it. Well, it ran out, so it's fine. Oh, when they go to Mexico? Yeah. Yeah. And he pulls into the village. Yeah. Yep. I made it a note at this point that this movie sort of has the same, like, old-timiness sheen as Over the Garden Wall. But it just likes to present things that were old as they were instead of, like, using that as a springboard, Mm -hmm. really do something darker or stranger with these iconography. That's interesting. Uh, I do like the over the garden wall. They've got a, um, a fan edit of that where they cut out all the beginning and ending credits and put it together as one long movie, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Delmer wants to find a wizard to turn Pete back. (laughs) And in the meantime, they decide to use their money to go to a restaurant and get a nice meal. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, I cracked up when he's... I don't think it's right to keep him under wraps like we're ashamed of him. When they have Pete <laughs> in the box at the table. <laughs> yeah. So what like you guys... That, uh, oh, go ahead. It cuts over to John... Uh, what's his name? I can never remember his Goodman. name. Yeah, John Goodman. Like, watching them. And you can hear in the background that after Clooney orders, 
you ask if they have any nits or grubs or anything in the back for the frog, <laughs> and he ends up just ordering two pieces of cabbage. <laughs> I didn't hear that. That's oh, great. That's so funny. So I was just gonna say, what do you guys think of John Goodman in this? I wish he were a better used. Uh, I I think no matter what he's in, John Goodman innocent. He's. Uh, <laughs> I've been watching him a lot lately in Righteous Gemstones. And that dude has an energy that is just like, mm -hmm. you know, it's so good. I love him here. Uh, I loved him in Barton Fink as the devil uh, here mm -hmm. as the Cyclops. <laughs> like they get him to play these larger than life roles. And he just, I think he seems like he takes up all that is, space. His best movie is Coyote Ugly, I'd say. <laughs> Isn't Coyote Ugly? <laughs> He's the dad in it. Was it uh, wasn't that the same year as this? It's right around the it same could be time. Right around then. Yeah. Yeah, late nineties. Talk like about this. talk about being a fourteen year old boy seeing Coyote Ugly. Ooh. <laughs> and then finding out that it's a chick flick with like bad romantic comedy and bad <laughs> pop music. But but there was cleavage. Yep. So I was in. And booty shorts. Yeah. When you come here, you'll have to go to Coyote Ugly. Yep. We can also go to Twin Peaks. They have those everywhere now. Oh, do I that? saw one of those. I was like, that's horrible. <laughs> There's, I was so bummed because, like, years ago when they opened up the one in Cool Springs, there was an announcement of, like, Twin Peaks restaurant opening. And I was like, shit, this is going to be great. And then I looked <laughs> it up and saw that it was basically uh, a mountain-themed Hooters. And I was like, son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> The peaks are just boot. God dang it. Yeah. It's like the, the tilted kilt. It's not a Scottish place. It's it's just for looking at ladies' butts. I've never heard of that. And, you know. But didn't men traditionally wear kilts? So wouldn't yeah, that should be show more of like penises. a. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, at least some um, like ball sack cleavage, whatever the mm -hmm. like the, the bottom of the sack Ball sack cleavage? <laughs> <laughs> no, he said ba that? ball sack cleavage. Yeah. It's very classic. Yeah. On Ray Balzac. Mm-hmm. It's uh in that, that famous uh cemetery in France. Um <laughs> the one that Jim Morrison's buried in. <laughs> yeah. Those are King and Ball. No, the um uh, forgive, forgive me for living, but I never read it. There's another musical Balzac script. Oh, Balzac, yeah. I remember uh, forgive me for living, but I, I never, never read, read it. it. Yes. I remember kids doing that, and uh, I should have picked that. God, it's so much of the musical stuff takes me back to high school, though. Yeah, the Music Man was definitely the one we replayed over and over in music class. Yep, which is why I have a real affection for it. And it's one of the only I've seen uh, Phantom, Joseph, uh, Music Man. It's one of the only classic ones that I've seen. Yeah. Uh Hamels Hamilton. Um I know there was a couple of We watched it for a midnight musical groups, and I think it still holds up pretty well for what it is. I saw a stage production of, of Amadeus, which was amazing. Oh, that was very cool. <laughs> the the like his nightmare stuff was uh like they had two story kind of father uh death uh -huh. figure that came out during his nightmares, which was mm. just astonishing. I don't know how the people do stuff like that. Uh -huh. Sean, get us back on track. You're normally good at that. 
Cyclops. That that whole conversation was so far over my head. It was like a jet plane flying in the sky. Um, yeah, John Goodman is not as good of a man as his name purports him to be. Oh. Ooh. Down in front. Ooh. So when when he starts attacking them, I don't know why, but George Clooney being so nonplussed about like, what's going on, Dan? Yeah. That, that cracks me up that he yeah. just has no reaction to this man assaulting Delmer. Yeah. Yeah. It made me so sad that they hadn't read the Odyssey, because if they had, they could have done the nobody stuff, which is yes. the most fun part of the uh, Cyclops. Oh, there is, I think somebody earlier, the, there's some kind of no man. Yeah, the guy on the reference. push cart. Yeah, somebody side. says it, yeah. Um, and I thought that the, I didn't remember it from here, but I was like, oh, they're going to do a running gag of it, but they don't. It just, they do it there and drop yeah. it. Do you guys remember when this came out? It felt like it was a secret that it was based on the Odyssey. Yes. Like, I feel like there were so many, did you knows that he's actually the Cyclops, but it's so obvious in all the credits and it opens with the quote from the Odyssey. Yes. Like they're not hiding it at all. But you know, these are the same guys that made Fargo based on a true story. So yeah, that's true. I think playing with that is definitely part of their uh, raison d'etre. Yeah, I do like that. Uh, that John Goodman is telling him that he's selling the truth, which is uh, what Clooney has been saying the whole movie. Everybody's just looking for the truth. Yeah, and that's his. He finally gets him <laughs> by getting a log upside the head. <laughs> yeah, I don't like when Dan squishes the toad. No. That makes me sad. Yep. It makes I me think of a moment like in Green Mile, him. which is equually actually no. that moment in Green Mile is way worse. Yes. Um Yeah. And Pete, my next note, Pete has been caught and is being whipped by, as he sees it, the devil. Mm. He's being flogged. We have very lightning y behind trees shots mm-hmm. that feel like they're from a silent movie. Uh I think it's interesting that some of the most colorful shots in this movie tends to be in is that a tobacco field where the chain gang is usually yeah i think so working around yeah i think it's near one yeah uh those are usually the most vibrant shots and then when they're on the road traveling that's when you get it really desaturated and dusty looking mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. anytime they're near these tobacco fields with the chain gang it's it's like magic hour constantly um when is the line, uh, the, don't you, haven't you heard? We got a depression on. <laughs> is that with the, the cousin earlier? Uh, yeah, I think it probably is. Yeah. There's just that through line of like, Hey guys, don't you remember the dust bowl? Like yeah. <laughs> kind of that's happening <laughs> through all of this. Um, I think it, it permeates the, the look of it and it switches almost because the whole thing looks like it's supposed to be mythological, but there are certain things mm-hmm. that are more grounded and then other things that are more, uh, you know, like the fairy realm, like you said, it, that does seem magical yeah. when they're in the woods and it seems like a, a respite from w- once they get into town in a little bit, uh, everything seems a lot flatter, you know, mm-hmm. than, than the nature stuff, I think. Sean? My my next note is just about the challenging governor. Just named Homer Stokes. And uh-huh. Everett's daughters are adorable. 
The new suitor is bona fide. The ring is bona fide. Mama said he's bona fide. This man is bona fide. <laughs> he's a suitor. Mama said he's bona fide. Stay out of the Woolsworth. I really liked these girls where I'm normally not crazy about children actors, but I thought they were pretty dang funny. Yeah, them being a singing group feels like it should be something more, too, but it doesn't really come back again. Yeah. No, but I loved their singing towards the end of this movie. Uh, this part really gets trapped up in those little phrases that it keeps repeating for some reason. Yep. He's a suitor. He's bona fide. I'm a paterfamilias. This whole movie has sort of a weird attraction to Latin, even though it's based on a Greek story. Uh, my next scene is the fight. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of the fight, do you guys recognize the the actor? No. Um, vaguely. What's he from? Um, that's Ray McKinnon, who uh is he was in Deadwood. He was in Sons of Anarchy. I haven't gotten there yet. Okay. I just started Deadwood. Okay. Um, he was in uh. Was he in Justified? I think, like all of these kind of Southern oh, no. fried sort of things uh, he yeah. has been in. Um, Does he always play a twerp? He's the perfect twerp. The thing is, he's tougher in some of the other parts. Like, yeah. uh, he's... I guess he's 10 or 15 years older, so yes. that makes sense. But he is kind of... Um, uh, he seems like you're not supposed to like him right away. <laughs> Yeah. I always feel yeah, that he's a twerp. It. Yes. He's the interloper. Yes. He's the suitor. Yeah. Penelope's. But he's bona fide. Yeah, well, the suitors were having sex with the maids, and they all get murdered at the end, so. Okay, you lost me with that one. That's the Odyssey. Oh, okay. This movie really suffers from not having a Cersei figure. Cersei is my favorite part of the whole Odyssey thing. He's staying so out the of the fight. I, yes, what? the fight. I... We got the suitor with the classic fighting Irish backhands facing Clooney. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck Clooney's doing, but I love it. I, his arms are up, his elbows are at 90 degrees, and I don't think he knows what to do with his hands. No. He's fighting like a real man. It's, he looks like, like if he could connect, but it's going to be a haymaker, right? It's going to be something that you see coming a mile away. It's not going to be like <laughs> yeah. a jab. It's going to be like his whole body <laughs> is going into it, but he never even gets a, a punch like off. Ape. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is what he is. He's a big dumb ape. <laughs> we uh, never talked about his name. He's Ulysses Everett McGill. Yeah. Which after first being, he has the same name as Everett McGill, famous character actor from Twin Peaks and License to Kill and but I also wondered if there was a, like a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? A deliberate connection between Better Call Saul, because he's Jimmy McGill. Oh, yeah. And he's also a shyster lawyer. I don't know if Breaking Bad actually made that connection or not. It would kind of surprise me if they didn't. I mean, they delved deep yeah. into that, uh, into the, the poetical and references. Um, but yeah. The the fight in the Woolsworth is great, and uh, what is it? Somebody asks Holly Hunter, "Who is that?" And she says, "It's not my husband." <laughs> yeah. Later on, when they say we was banned from the Woolworths, I'm not sure if it's that one location or the entire yeah. franchise. <laughs> that, yeah, that's a good line. Uh, this is a very cruel note, but I made the note that the baby that uh, Holly Hunter is has when she 
when we first see her in that scene, it's one of the ugliest babies I've ever seen. <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> Josh is in- <laughs> I, I am not having Josh that. Josh is insulted. No. I'm giggling away. <laughs> we so. Uh, my next scene is in the theater when the chain gang walks in and Pete sits behind them. Uh, the the loud whispering back and it's forth between so these two groups is so funny. And when yeah. uh, when Pete when Delmer says, "We thought you was a toad," <laughs> Pete looks so confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does the best, like what face? It's really good. Totoro just spends most of this movie kind of looking scornfully at other people like his that kind of screwed up I can't even do it but where he's just like he's like wide eyed but also kind of grimacing at him at the same time it's great (laughs) now did I miss the transition of how they then get Pete free or did it just jump to them the three of them back on the road together they break him out yeah I don't know how they got into the prison I don't know how they got back out but it shows him in bed being very afraid and they have those uh, chain cutters that they carry for the rest of the movie and they just cut him out and leave. Okay. I must have missed that one somehow. It's very uh, short. Yeah, it's... That scene where Pete goes, I, I only had two weeks left on my sentence. <laughs> but I, I, I left early so we could do this four-day treasure hunt. Oh my yeah. god, that's heartbreaking. This part really confuses me because he's like, don't seek the treasure. They've set up a... An ambush. ambush trap for you, yeah. but there's no treasure. So how did they set up a trap around the treasure? Well, it's where they think the treasure is. But yeah. the confusing part to me is that they then go back to the house, and Pete totally goes back to. The, oh, well, I guess they're pardoned at that point, so they think they're in the clear, and they don't. Yeah. They don't realize that the guy chasing them is the actual devil and does not care for the laws of man. He serves a higher purpose. Yeah, yeah I forgot about that. Uh, but this is where Ulysses finally comes clean, admits there's no treasure. He only broke out of jail to get to his wife before she married the interloper who is bona fide. He's a suitor. Mm-hmm. Also, this entire scene, they're in blackface for no reason, just so they can be mistaken for black people later. Yes. The movie doesn't even pretend to justify like that Let's was put on a disguise so no one notices us. They the... really cut that part out. The part, yeah, and it's with the KKK, how many Ks are in that? The KKK scene coming up, it's completely unnecessary for them to have Cole ashy face. I don't, Mm -hmm. it it didn't play at all. I didn't quite get it. It doesn't work. I wrote down that it's essentially not any different than the scene in the Marx Brothers where they fall into Cole and get mistaken for black people. Like there's no, it has no, it's making no commentary on anything. It's just a joke. Yeah. How many hours of dance rehearsal does the KKK have per week? <laughs> Plenty. These are some marching band-esque movements that they have going on. Well, this scene is pretty directly based on the uh, Wizard of Oz, where the uh, uh, Tin Man and the Lion, and they dress up as the Wicked Witch's soldiers mm-hmm. and sneak in. Like the KKK is even singing "Eeny Meeny Miny Mo" like a stupid chant, like our soldiers do. Oh, that's funny. I, I yeah. did not connect that. I played a a winky. That's what they're called, the yeah, monkey yeah. soldiers. Yeah. And uh, my fourth grade, we did like a fourth grade play, and it was Wizard of Oz. But for some reason, the teachers decided that 
making parents sit through that once wasn't punishment enough so we did back-to-back <laughs> plays that ran about 45 minute each one was the regular wizard of oz and then so we bad. did it again but replaced the script with big words <laughs> why oh <laughs> i don't know if it was so they could get more kids stage time but i i, I imagine being a parent now and be like oh great it's over and then be like okay parents <laughs> no, that two, is, but now mystifying. we're going to use big vocabulary. Uh, for, first of all, that's <laughs> irresponsible and should never be done to to a parent. That sounds like a sketch from the electric company. <laughs> uh, secondly, Sean, you've been lying to us this whole time, saying that you don't have a history with musical theater. You were in a bona fide production of <laughs> one of true, the greatest musicals of all time. I was, I double rolled too. Ooh. I was, oh. I was Uncle Henry. And so I had to pretend to be counting chicks in an incubator and go, stop bothering <laughs> us, Dorothy, and go get to work or whatever. I, and then, and then I'd run and quick change and get into my winky outfit so then I could go, oh, we, oh. You know, yo. I think there is an, an Uncle Henry quality about you as you've, as you've grown. I could I could see you in what a pair of mean? overalls, counting a bunch of chicks. Yep. Yeah, with no kids. Either that yeah, or Leroy. Just y- yelling at <laughs> yelling at a child on the farm, giving my niece's dog away. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I really wrote this whole KKK scene as like classic sort of capital L liberal approach to these things. So it's like. Here's the KKK. They're a big joke. Let's laugh at them. They're so stupid. It's like the Mel Brooks school of let's, let's laugh at the Nazis. That'll be fine. They'll, they're not a threat anymore. Uh, and I think it would have been funnier. Oh, sorry, Josh. Good. I was just gonna say, of course, all the bad guys are there. Like the mm-hmm. it's it's the meetup for the bad guys, and yeah. they think that it's totally normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that's how John Goodman lost his one eye was catching the flag that somebody <laughs> threw at a previous date? Yeah. I thought it was going to be funny if he sacrificed himself to keep the Confederate flag off the ground and just let it like impale him through the chest. He catches it and then sets it flag side down on the ground. I noticed that, yes. but the way he's putting <laughs> what's going on there. They didn't even use the rebel flag in the 30s. Because apparently the U.S. Uh, flag was still synonymous enough with the racist KKK that they could just use it. Oh, they see, get we've away come so, so far. Quickly. Yeah. They get away so fast here. There's a giant mob of people, and somehow yeah. throwing a flag distracts everyone enough to then cut down their cross, which is held up with one guy wire. Come mm-hmm. on, KKK. Well, just waving a stick back and forth keeps the people from storming them. Yeah. That's <laughs> so good. Uh but they do uh, they next... do find Tommy at the clan meeting, so Tommy gets to go with them yeah. from here Thank on goodness, out. Thank goodness, so he can have one more line and not have any character. <laughs> yes. But he sure does play that guitar real mean. Uh, is this the, and then they're We're in, back, back I'm in back town? back at the concert now. Yes. Yeah. They pick up some beard somewhere. I, I really liked the band that goes before them, that plays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I love the fact that uh, George Clooney's character is distracted for a second and walks forward to talk to Holly Hunter. And Delmer is like, 
the microphone's mine. Like, yeah. <laughs> like he runs right up to it and he's like, it's Delmer's time to shine. And I'm going to do in the jailhouse. Okay, he does. Cause he sings his own song and it's great. It is. It's very good. And, uh, the yodeling cracks me up because Totoro <laughs> lip syncing to that is so good. Totoro looks, is really Totoro doing looks possessed when he's yodeling. Yeah. And when he's dancing, I don't know what oh he's doing. Oh my god. The Turturro, I need to learn the Turturro <laughs> dance yes. because it's it's incredible. His dance, yeah. I couldn't look at anything but his dance when he was doing that bent elbow knee thing. <laughs> it's very confusing, but clearly he's having a lot of fun, uh, which I appreciate. That's- so, challenging Governor Homer grabs the mic, calls them out. Yeah. I belong to a certain secret society. Oh, God, that was bad. I can't do a southern accent. What, is, is he a southern lawyer who's <laughs> yeah, also a baby? Well, no. The, the well, I think certain, he's from the Bronx. Certain, certain, he's certain, 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 certain he's secret certain society. secret society. Yes, you know you want to be and famous, don't you? Robinson? Robinson? Oh, see, oh, I'm part of the KKK, see? <laughs> Yeah, this is where this movie gets to pat itself on the back, where the 1930s uh, Mississippi uh, crowd gets to say, yeah, we want integration. I love how quickly these people turn on this man that they were going to vote for (laughs) and are now pelting him with vegetables. (laughs) Did you guys see the the show Hollywood from a couple years ago? Is that the one with like Darren Chris and people in it? Yes. I did not see that. I heard very bad reviews. <laughs> oh, if you just want to wear a coat of your own righteousness and be very <laughs> happy with this alternate uh-huh. per, uh, presentation of <laughs> of uh, every race, creed, color, identity is accepted in this version mm-hmm. of your 1930s Hollywood. And it's soapy. I mean, it's Ryan Murphy, so yeah. of course it is. And It's garbage. Yeah. But on its own terms, I can see the appeal. Yeah, it definitely. Uh, someone presented it to me as uh, the alternate version of Tarantino's alternate version of Hollywood. Like, yeah. if he gets to do that, why doesn't somebody else get to do this imaginary past? And I was like, okay, sure, yeah. Um, I've never seen. I've never seen anyone. I've never seen anyone carried away on a log of shame. You've never seen anybody run out of town on a rail? Yeah. On a pike? Oh, is that what didn't that get tarred and feathered. Yep. Run yeah. out on a rail? Is that what that means? Yep. Yeah. I always pictured a train, I guess. Nope. They'd usually tar and feather you and then tie you to that and run you out of town. Yeah. I never knew as a kid that tar and feathering would kill you. I mean, I, th- I mean, it doesn't necessarily, but I think usually they pour hot tar in you, which would. Yeah. Yes. I think a good thorough one would. Kill you. Yeah. yeah. Of course, then you could be drawn and quartered where horses pull you apart, too. So that would definitely kill you. Uh, that's my note here was the crowd turns on the MAGA guy. I wish today's uh, <laughs> public was as progressive as this imagined version of our past was. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then the uh, Pappy, the current governor, uh, decides to latch on to the Soggy Bottom mm. Boys and make himself palatable to the public. And I do the love boys. how he walks, 
how he walks on stage yes. to join how he in dances with them. on stage uh, and, and dances his way onto the stage to be part of them is just it's uh, so it's, weird. It's great. It's great. Thanks, yeah. lazy politician. Yeah, he's, he's it's I could really picture uh Trump doing his his dance to the side. It's the same thing, right? Like I'm cool. I'm like you guys. I like to dance. It's totally Hillary. Let's all Pokemon go to the polls. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I really like this like this uh interpretation of the Deus Ex Machina where Zeus is suddenly here and he pardons them and yes. there is new think tank. We're going to be the power behind the throne. <laughs> uh, but then they run into George in the street, uh, Babyface Nelson. Yeah. And he is ecstatic because he's been caught and is going to get electrocuted. <laughs> and he's he's yeah. waxing poetic about it. He's not just excited. He's like, lightning is going to shoot forth from my fingertips and toes. This looks like a fun mob to be a part of. They got <laughs> two guys playing some music and singing. It just looks like a real good vibe. You get to kill a white person for once. I mean, even George is happy about it. It's kind of win-win all around. Uh, That's true. The only problem is, I believe those two guys are credited as village idiots in the credits. <laughs> which oh, is well. a little rude. Uh, this is where Ulysses's, U- Ul- George Clooney's wife says that she will remarry him if he gets her the ring that's in the roll-top desk in their, at their house. Which sets up... I've counted to three, and I've said my piece and counted to three. God damn it, she counted to three. <laughs> I gotta do it, she counted to three. <laughs> it sets up our last plot point of they have to go back to the old homestead that apparently no one's been at. Uh, Except for the evil dead. <laughs> <laughs> it does look evil dead-ish, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I think it's sp- supposed to be. Didn't one of the Coens work on evil dead? Yeah, they all lived together. Sam Raimi uh, lived with mm-hmm. the Coen brothers and um, oh, that was in their mythical house. Yeah. Francis McDormand. Yeah. Uh, really? I've never heard this. And it was on Gorland rest. Yep. Uh, I've the, listened to so many hours of those guys. I can't remember at all there. And the, the Coen's shot parts of Raimi's movies and Raimi part shot of shot part of the Coen's movies. And they all were in, mm. uh, did parts of the intruder together, which is a great, slasher film that I is totally underseen huh. about people trapped in a supermarket overnight. It's very fun. So they go back to the homestead and the, the bad sheriff slash devil is still, still waiting there to string them up. Uh, and basically you just get like them philosophizing at each other for a minute waiting for yeah. the flood. <laughs> and they pray to the gods to help them. Yes. Uh, Which is another nice Greekish touch. I do like that Clooney is altruistic, or um, not altruistic, but he wants to see his family. It's it is a, a seemingly purer motive than like wanting to get a, a treasure. He wants to see his daughters again. His whole yeah. his whole passel of daughters, which I think is very the little Warvy girls. Yeah, the flood hitting is fun. I like the. POV mm. shot of yep. the flood itself as it comes up and hits them. That's pretty cool. And then, like, like Russell it's said sort of earlier, leaking this, up out of the ground. Yeah, the ground leak is uh, yeah. the little streams that start running. But like Russell said, the floating, the underwater shot with all the different Brill cream or Dapper Dan cans and the dog yeah. and mm-hmm. a gramophone or it just all these 
little objects floating by really this is definitely one of the more like magical moments of this. Yeah, movie. that's when it really hits that tone for me for like the second time in the movie is really elevated here. It it felt like a Southern Fried James Bond sequence to me. Huh, that's interesting. You got them floating past and you got, you know, you got your hound dog and your real cream and whatnot. You got me doing it now, Sean. Damn it, he's a Dapper Dan man. <laughs> I don't want fop. I'm a Dapper Dan man. <laughs> Uh, I like that they're saved on a by a floating coffin. <laughs> Maybe yeah. a Moby Dick reference. Yeah, I read that. Um, and Tommy's on the roll deck, the roll desk, uh-huh. whatever. The roll, top. Yep. the roll top, which has the ring in it that he needs, but it's the wrong ring. God damn it! That's Saint Marlene's ring. Yes, I said it might be it might in be. the roll top desk. <laughs> She is the perfect for this part. She is so terse and has such a strange little voice. Yep. And uh, yeah, we close this movie out with Clooney kind of telling us what the movie was about. Yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I and he only know. has six daughters at the end instead of seven. Does he? Yeah. I didn't count. Maybe I the, just made that the... somewhere and then I counted. Maybe the knot that they tied to the last one came undone and she's oh, just yeah, she's lost just in the lost. city somewhere. Coen brothers are really good at ending a movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I really liked this last girl lingering in the frame and then getting tugged out of it as the Oracle guy keeps rolling down the train tracks. Really I did like just... them walking past the like the electric like electricity is coming, like WPA billboard. Yeah. I, I think this last minute shot here is a real nice closer to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then it has some credits to ease us out of the movie. Right? Which they do. They do. That'll do it for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm-hmm. What, what do you guys rank it? I can't believe this was 22 years ago. That's the thing that like kept fucking with me. I haven't seen this movie in 20 years. It then. can't be that long. I sort of can and can't. I know. I haven't seen this since I was probably 15, though. Yeah. I was I was an entire adult, like with a job and uh, living on my own and stuff. That's it's weird. That's that, that's impossible. I was not. <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's start it up. Josh, what did you give? Oh, brother, where art thou? Uh, I mean, I tipped my hand early. I'm a total sucker for this movie. It's getting all the stars from me. I think it's wow. wow. And a heart. Five stars. I think it's great. I really, wow. I, as I was watching it, I was like, why haven't I watched this more often? I've, I put on the Cohen's fairly regularly, um, as comfort mm-hmm. fuel. Uh, and this, that's probably why I feel like they just have better movies, <laughs> but I, I like, even if this one is great, they have even greater movies. That's, than a that's true. Uh, yeah. But I do think like Clooney does something special and it's the same. That's true. Same thing he's doing in um, out of sight, right? Like he's slick, but he's also kind of bumbling and he's charming mm-hmm. uh, and he's the best looking guy in the room and he knows it. He's like that in the uh, Hail Caesar too. That's true. Yes. He, that is really his strength. Yeah. Uh, but he's more of a jerk in Hail Caesar, but he also gets taken advantage of more. Well, sort of, yeah. but he's like just a d- big idiot. who's was like, Oh, I want to be a communist. Yeah. So that, I mean, <laughs> That gives him points in my book. Yes. So, Russell, what do you give it? Um, like I said, I really 
thought that Ebert review was true of me. Like it's the scenes are nice, but it never coalesces into much. And I think, I mean, I just don't think that the humor is working at really works as much as it used to. Like it's a fine movie. It just hasn't aged terribly well. And I guess I'm sort of, this is a really a good way to judge a movie, but I'm judging against its potential of like what this could have been if it was a more Odyssey-y Odyssey adaptation. Like there's just so much interesting incident in the Odyssey that could have been brought here. Like I said, I, it would have been fun to have a Circe and like the pigs turn into swine. That's sort of what they do with the frog. But man, I just love, I guess I'm, I love the Circe character. If anyone is interested in that, there's a really good novel called Circe about her. I think it's by Madeline Miller, maybe is the author's name. It's a fantastic book. But I mean, this is still a fine movie. It's just a little flat for me. So I gave it two and a half stars and a heart. It's likable. I'll accept it. I, I, once again, yeah. uh, I don't go with your rating, but I love your reasoning. So, Yeah, as one of our Discord friends said, I have terrible opinions, but I can back them up. Uh, I would run this one at a three and a half out of five. I enjoy it. I just don't love it. And talking about it was really fun. And there's a lot of moments in this movie that I really love. A lot of them are Tim Blake Nelson or Turturro's stuff. Mm. Um, I think Russell and Roger Ebert both kind of hit it on the head same way that I feel like. Talking about this movie scene by scene, it feels like I should love it, but I only yeah. like it. I think that's fair. I, I will also, I will deign to accept your reasoning, Sean. Thank <laughs> God, because I was not going to sleep a wink tonight if you did not. <laughs> Just tossing and turning. Oh, no. Well, Russell, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time here. I know this thank show you is a gigantic ask to basically, you know, ask people to do about seven to eight hours of time commitment between the two movies and recording. So uh, I mean, I this gave it. me an opportunity to talk about my opinions, which I never have. So <laughs> you listen to every other podcast and you're like, Oh, these guys are so wrong. If only I was there to correct them. And you know, for once I was, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Plus this show is just a delight and I love listening to it. And I, it was a great to be on. Thank you so much, Russell. That makes me happy. If you want to hear more from Russell, I highly recommend his episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philadelphia, hosted by our friend George. Great show in general. Uh, Russell, do you have anything else that you would like to plug? Any movie you think people should watch that you've seen recently? A book? I don't know. Anything. I've been watching bad movies recently. Not necessarily bad movies, just ones I was like, meh, I'm out. Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd if you want. I'm pretty sure it's at The Pant Weaver. Uh, so you can search me up there and read my reviews if you want. Uh, I also have a very intermittent sort of audio podcastical thing called the uh, Rambled Testaments of History, which I am going to be updating soon. Cool. Uh, you can hear very, um, we'll say, interesting uh, stories of people from history and the things they've lived through. So if you want to check that out, you can. I think that's what I got. Cool. I have nothing. Josh, what do you have? Yeah, not a whole lot right now. I got this All show. Right. So, <laughs> it's the doldrums of January. Uh, next episode, uh, Josh and I haven't even discussed anything. So no. No oh. game plan. Oh, man. I wanted to 
insight. It, it is it is a mystery yet to be solved. Watch a mystery. Join our Discord, and uh, you'll find out about the movies before we release episodes. There you uh, go. Josh, you end it. Take care of yourselves. Take care of well, each you other. Gotta, you gotta, like, you gotta wow. ease into it. Thank I'm the s- listeners. <laughs> thank them for being here. Just uh, that was so. That was like a musical ending. Like there was no credits to that. You were going straight to the black screen. Uh-huh. Give us a little bit of credits. Now, Josh, will you please do the ending, but do it only the way I want it done? And here are my notes of how to do it correctly. <laughs> this is this is why we end up with Sean doing it every time too. <laughs> yeah. He clearly wants to. I always take a swing and a miss and then just turn it back over to him. We found someone more passive aggressive than the Countess. Or the <laughs> it's, it's his way of one upping me. <laughs> okay, take two. Thank you, listeners, for your time, for your attention, and for your love. Was that enough? Did I do enough? No, it's too much. <laughs> We hope that you enjoyed these movies as much as we did or didn't. From all of us here at Nashville CA, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. We love you. Then see you later. Is that what we, could, is that what we got? <laughs> Thanks. Nice to smell. I nearly. Ooh, Sean's doing like an angry Muppet face at me. It's wow. It's disapproving. I'm just, I'm just waiting for you to awkwardly end this. Oh, it, I mean, it's been awkwardly going the whole time. Uh, I just do the little ring of our uh, theme song. That's it. That's it. That's it. Dun, 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 dun. Yep. There we go. Done. Out. And stop. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It is. It is officially over now. <laughs>